Welcome to the Doc Washburn Show, the show that talks about what you actually care about. We stream live at noon Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, weekdays at docwashburnshow.com. Minutes after each live stream is completed, the Doc Washburn Show podcast is available for download at all your favorite podcast platforms. The Doc Washburn Show is on Twitter and Facebook. You can email us at doc at contact at docwashburnshow.com. This is the 70th episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. It's Wednesday, January 19th, 2022. Coming up, they lied to you about what Ashley Babbitt was doing on January 6th, 2021 at the U.S. Capitol. And they lied about what happened to Officer Brian Sicknick that day. In just a minute, we're going to talk to somebody who was actually there. But first, yes, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. Yes, it's obvious the last U.S. presidential election was stolen. No, my old employer wouldn't allow me to say that on the radio. And yes, there's all kinds of evidence out there that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We're unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you would like to support what we do, go to our website, docwashburnshow.com, and click on the button that says Become a Patron. All right, now, having said that, it's an honor to welcome our next guest. He's an independent journalist named Taylor Hansen, uh, and he was actually at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. And originally, we wanted to bring him on because he has a new report out about what really happened to Officer Brian Sicknick, uh, the mainstream media and the Capitol Police at first lied and said he was hit over the head with a fire extinguisher, which wasn't true. But since we scheduled the interview, we also found out uh, that he was there with Ashley Babbitt that day. So we want to talk about both those things. Uh, Mr. Hanson, thank you so much for coming on the program. And uh, how are you today? Of course. Thanks for having me on, Doc. And I am just doing as wonderful as possible, just sticking to investigating and uh, trying to figure out the truth behind what happened on January 6th. Absolutely. Well, I guess one of the things that makes it a little bit easier is that you were actually uh, there that day. Um, can you tell us what happened with uh, President Trump's speech and then what happened with you going over to, to the Capitol? Yeah, at about, uh, I would say, roughly you know, 1150 area when President Trump, so President Trump began speaking, and I did a breakdown shortly after uh, what took place at the Capitol. And what really led me to the Capitol was it was about 10 minutes. Um, there was a BS chant that went up in the air um, after President Trump had began talking about election fraud. And around that mark, uh, some suspicious people began wandering around and gathering people and saying, hey, we're going to the Capitol. We're going to the Capitol. And this is right as Trump began speaking. And so I kind of grouped up in that group and just followed them. And this ended up being the initial breach group that actually went through the very first gate and second gate. And upon going through those two gates, there were no security. I mean, there was five officers on the first barrier and three of them are women and all five of them are rookies. So they were just thrown out there with no protective gear, nothing. So it was really interesting to see that. And then upon breaching through the, the very first gate, the same officers backed up to the second gate. So they were responsible for securing that one as well, which they didn't do a very good job of. And that was easily pushed right over. And upon establishing the initial zone where everybody was at for about an hour and a half, everyone was just standing around and was 
peaceful. They were just talking. And as more people pushed up and the barriers had already been cut in the surrounding areas, so people began coming into the overflow area because it's at least what they thought it was. It appeared to be, I mean, completely accessible to the public, so nobody really knew they were about to trespass. And um, upon walking in and filling it in, that's when the Capitol Police began throwing crowd munitions into the crowd with no warning. There was no declaration of a riot. Um, And they actually threw five grenades in under a minute and five seconds back to back. And this was just in people standing around. I mean, I've covered, you know, riots countrywide. I've been in Portland. I've been, you know, all over the country where some of these, the riots, the summer of love took place last year. And I've never seen a police reaction like I saw that day. I mean, there was no declaration of a riot. Legally, they have to let you know that you cannot be on the property and that it's become an unlawful assembly. But they did not do that to anybody they actually were walking around with a very small speaker in the hallways after they had already attacked the American people, um, de- declaring it a riot, but nobody could hear it because it was a tiny Bluetooth speaker. And I have some video of that as well. But and then upon entering the building, the officers actually just opened the door for us. And okay, I let, just walked right in. Let, let me, let me ask well something as, real, just uh, briefly, just uh, for clarification for the listeners. Um, if I, if I understand correctly, you are basically confirming uh, Darren Beatty's reporting over the vol, uh, revolver.news from a couple of weeks ago that there were people who got rid of the barricades, got rid of the signs saying you're not supposed to trespass on the Capitol grounds before most of the people got there from the speech. So people showed up. This is the first entrance to the Capitol. They have no idea that they're supposedly trespassing even by being on the grounds, much less going into the building. Yes, sir. Yeah, Darren Darren hit it right on the head with that report. Yeah, okay. All right, just want to make sure, because uh, some of the people listening might not have, uh, have, have read that report, so I just want to make sure everybody uh, understood what you were saying. So then, um, if I understand you correctly, after they're throwing flashbang grenades at people, uh, then people who get to the actual doors of the Capitol, they're like, oh, well, come on in. Yep. Yeah, well, there's actually, I mean, it's on video. It's documented. These officers are standing there. They open the door for these protesters, and they let them on in. And, I mean, right as they let them in, I mean, it just began a huge, long funnel of people, and everyone began going. And that's where I followed. And I entered. I was on the rear side of the Capitol, and I walked up those steps, and I just continued and followed the huge line in and there was a uh, an alarm or something going off of a lot a loud sounds um all throughout the capitol and people just began to fill the halls and we just started walking and upon walking i was in the capitol for i would say almost in an hour or so yeah and we began walking and i ended up going up a spiral staircase following everyone and then we eventually ended up in the capitol rotunda and in the rotunda that's where everyone began gathering up and we Every, all the protesters began pushing because there were no officers. So they just kept walking, and the officers that were there, they just stood around. And, I mean, they were taking selfies with people. They were talking. I talked to multiple officers. And another thing mainstream media doesn't talk about is how people were actually helping officers out of the building. They were clearing paths for them to, to walk out. Wow. Wow. Well, the thing about... I guess um, I was one of those people, not having been there, of course, who thought that maybe there was one group of officers doing the flashbang grenades, the tear gas or whatever, um, 
on, in one part of the Capitol and maybe in another part of the Capitol, officers were, were opening, opening the doors and saying, come on in. Like they were, you know, the Capitol's a big place. There were two different places. But if I understand what you're correct, saying correctly, uh, some of that stuff pretty much happened in the, in, in the same area. Yeah, simultaneously. I mean, people were being gassed in one area and people were being let in in an area right next to it. So it was the strangest thing I've ever seen. And upon entering the Capitol, I knew something was going on because you don't just walk into one of the most secure buildings in the world, not even the nation, unarmed especially. Um, so I, I kind of knew something was fishy just from all the reporting I had done in the past. Yeah. And as people began gathering in and as they got to the house chamber door, the officers up front, this is where Jake Angeli is and where that uh, really, that, that video that blew up a while ago where they say, you can come into the lobby if you guys are peaceful. You know, you just need to be peaceful, no destruction, no violence. And the cops are quite literally negotiating with the people up front, with the protesters that have their bullhorns and are talking to the crowd. And they began trying to calm down the crowd and, you know, sue them and say, okay, they're going to let us in, guys. We just have to be peaceful. We have to be quiet. We just have to be respectful. And then the crowd calmed down, and then you had about one or two agitators, one of them being Zachary Alam, the helmet boy, um, actually riled the crowd back up again. And then that's when there was a push made for the officers to the door, and everyone began conglomerating kind of on the house uh, chamber door. And that's where those pictures come out of the sergeant of arms employees aiming handguns out at the protesters with all the stuff barricaded. And so about four minutes of that went by, and everybody began just conglomerating in that one area. And upon that, I mean, nothing really was going on. Everyone was fairly silent. I mean, they were just trying, they wanted to get in. The officers told them they could go in. And that's when I looked to the left and I noticed someone kind of wandering. So I began, you know, just following him that way. And the hallway was fairly empty. And I stumbled upon a room with a George Washington portrait in it. And I went in, you know, checked it out. Didn't really know where I was in the Capitol. I've never been there before, obviously, and was just documenting everything as I went. And at this time, I was live streaming. And I, I remember going out to the right of the uh, same room I went in, and that's when I first laid eyes on Ashley Babbitt. Okay. And for some reason, my, uh, my mind just told me to follow her. And she was walking alone down a hallway. And I began to follow her down this hallway, and we ended up just walking side by side. <laughs> We walked past a sergeant of arms employee. I asked him how his day was going. He said, good. And how about yours? And I said, it's great. Stay safe. And he was very calm, collected, didn't seem like there was an insurrection going on. And we just walked right past him. And that's when me and Ashley both turned right and approached the speaker's lobby doors where she would eventually be shot. We had There were three officers stationed at the door, Officer Yetter and then two other Metropolitan PD officers. And upon arriving, you know, Ashley joked with them. She made a comment to him about being from Massachusetts. And, I mean, she was just, she just seemed really happy to be there. And she didn't really know what she was about to walk into. And even I joked with the officers, and especially Officer Yetter. I was very vocal with him. I offered him a bottle of water because he was covered in capucin powder. And that's when everyone began to fill in the room after they had followed us. And very quickly that situation escalated from a completely peaceful situation to Ashley Babbitt being shot and killed is, I mean, she had essentially been pinned down in a corner. And from what I understand from Aaron Babbitt, I've grown very close with the family ever since January 6th is Ashley was extremely claustrophobic. 
And as the hallway began to fill and fill and fill, it began to get more full. And she just, she, she is not good in a situation where there's a lot of people shoulder to shoulder. Yeah. So I can imagine that began to freak her out a little bit. And on my video, we re-ran some transcripts and she's actually yelling. The, the moment in my video where she's yelling that mainstream media likes to, you know, really ramp up and go with the whole terrorist narrative. She's actually yelling at the cops to call for backup. But that's something that mainstream media does not want to talk about because it doesn't fit their domestic terrorist uh, narrative. Let me, let me, let me. actively yelling at these police to tell them they get more help. So let me ask you, um, we're speaking with Taylor Hanson, independent journalist who was actually there with Ashley Babbitt uh, on January 6, 2021, at the U.S. Capitol when she was shot and killed by a uh, U.S. Capitol police officer. Um, had you been to the Capitol before? Did you have any idea where you guys are going? It's a big place. It sounds like you're just kind of wandering around. Did you realize where you were when you got to these double doors right outside uh, what they call the speaker's lobby? Yeah. Upon even arriving at the speaker's lobby, almost nobody had any idea where they were. I mean, a lot of these people had never been inside the Capitol, any, I mean, ever in their life. And I hadn't either, even as a reporter. And, I mean, that, that's the reality of what the day mostly was, was people just wandering. Is They yeah. really had no idea where to go, what they were doing. They were just wandering. I mean, it was a picture op. Almost, I'd say, or I'd argue about 95% of people that were inside the Capitol had their cameras out and were actively recording or taking pictures and just kind of taking it all in. But I didn't realize where we were even sitting outside of the speaker's lobby. And as, as even Zachary Alam was breaking the glass, I didn't un- really understand that the uh, the actual Senate floor was essentially just right across that door from us. So nobody really knew unless they you know, had been in the Capitol prior to that, and not a lot of people have, uh, where they really were. And hearing you say this right now, I didn't realize that either because when I hear the term speaker's lobby, I'm thinking about the House, not the Senate. But you guys were really close to the Senate floor at that point. Yeah, and that's that's the exact opposite of what I would have thought, actually. Is, I mean, saying it was speaker's lobby, I figured, hey, we're probably close to Nancy Pelosi's office. That's kind of what went through my mind. Right. Um, and I thought we were kind of where the staffers' offices were and everything. Um, but then it ended up being that we were actually right outside of the Senate chamber where they had already evacuated the congressman out of. Right, 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 right. So, um, so the when you guys first get there, if I understand you correctly, it's you and Ashley Babbitt and maybe three police officers, and then pretty quickly, within a few minutes, the place really starts filling up with people because there's a log jam, there's a dead end, and nobody's going any further through those doors, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, and they just began filling where most it was most convenient for them. People began wandering, and they eventually ended up right next to us. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And and so in those several minutes when the area is filling up, um, what, what kind of conversation is going on between you and Ashley Babbitt and the police officers? I actually had a brief conversation with Officer Yetter as the room began filling up. As, as John Sullivan slid to the left of me, I could hear him trying to convince Officer Yetter to leave and to get all the cops to you know leave their post at the door. 
And I stepped in between Sullivan and Officer Yetter, and I told him, hey, I'm a journalist. You're safe. Nothing's going to happen. I'm just going to stand here and record, and I'll help protect you in case anything goes bad. And he seemed to be thankful for that. Um, Officer Yetter wasn't a very vocal person when he was in the hallway. Um, but the other officers, I mean, they quite literally were laughing with Ashley Babbitt minutes prior to her being shot and killed. And I'm not very uh, positive on, you know, what they were talking about. But knowing the kind of person that Ashley was, I mean, she was a military police officer. She, I mean, she flew a thin blue line flag sticker on her truck. Yeah, so, I mean, she was very pro-police, and, you know, she was there to help. And that's really what I believe is what she was trying to do when she went through that window is she realized, one, how claustrophobic she was and that she was in a very bad situation and it was going to turn to the worst. And, she, I mean, she actively tried to stop Zachary Alam from breaking the windows on multiple occasions, the same with the flagpole guy. And upon going through that window, I really believe what was going on in her mind is that, you know, she just needs to get out. And she needs to get to the other side of the window so she can kind of safeguard it. And her, she does not see p- the police as a threat because she had just been joking with them. She had just been talking to them. Right. And it would be really nice to know the specifics of what they were talking about because it really seemed like she wanted to go through that window so she could stop anything else from happening uh, from Zachary Alam or from any of the actual rioters or agitators that were there that day. And she paid the price for it. I mean, she paid the price for wanting to do the right thing. Wow. Well, um, so what can you tell me about this, Zachary? Uh, we're going to get to the shooting. We're going to get to Lieutenant Michael Byrd. we we got plenty of time here, but I don't want to leave anything out. What can you tell me about, well, before we get to Zachary Alam, this, uh, this John Sullivan guy who uh, goes by Jaden X and who wound up selling video footage of the shooting of uh, Ashley Babbitt to MSNBC and, and CNN. What can you tell me about this John Sullivan guy? Yeah, so John Sullivan is actually where I started my journalism career with. Is I lived in Utah at the time, and that's where he is from, Salt Lake City. And I actually began going undercover and sort of infiltrating his group, Insurgents USA and some other local anti-fascist groups and Black Lives Matter groups that have been protesting and rioting in the area. And I actually started, like I said, my career essentially infiltrating his group. And I got to know John um, fairly decent. I mean, I I had a few conversations with him prior to the Capitol. I knew who he was. I knew he was the leader of Insurgents USA. And I knew that his group was no good. Um, They had actually shot. They'd been responsible for shooting somebody at a Provo protest that was driving by in a truck. Provo, Provo, Utah. really started. uh, Yeah, Provo, Utah. Uh, They had shot, um, I want to say, Jesse Taggart. He was alongside John Sullivan, and John Sullivan knew him as well, and he ended up shooting, attempting to kill a man in a truck that was driving by, and he just wounded him, and he ended up going to the hospital. But So I'd been paying attention to John Sullivan for a really long time, and I actually didn't know it was John Sullivan up until after the shooting. I, didn't, I just heard somebody you know, talking in the background and telling the officers to leave, and in my mind, okay, that's probably an agitator, that's an infiltrator, yeah. somebody that that is not, you know, a Trump supporter. And so I stepped in front of him and kind of blocked him off. And I didn't even realize it was John Sullivan until afterwards. And once I did, I knew that there was something, I mean, much more going on than what we have been told and what we've seen, especially after reviewing his footage. I mean, because if you look at his family, I mean, his dad is an ex-Navy intelligence officer. Uh, His brother James is, you know, as right-wing as you can get. And then 
John is this left-wing anarchist. So in my mind, it's like this is just a psyop. Is this whole entire family is they play both sides, and whichever way the narrative goes is they win. It's because they have one son on one side and the other son on the other side. So it really just seemed like one big game to me. Um, but John Sullivan, especially, is he went initially after the shooting of Ashley Babbitt. Um, after I released Michael Bird's identity in February on February 14th for the first time he actually was actively calling Michael Byrd a murderer. You know, he truly believed that wow. what he saw that day, wow. uh, it was murder. And, and he wouldn't be far off by saying that. And then now that, you know, the commission's gotten to him and that he's had charges filed against him and she's magically had dropped and he's on house arrest now, he, uh, he, he switches his narrative to Michael Byrd as a hero. So it really shows you where he's getting his talking points from is it really seems like it's coming from the January 6th commission is everything that he had a strong stance on prior to is he's completely flipped and sold out, and he actively attacks me constantly on Twitter. He so to blame Alex Jones for the insurrection, so it really seems yeah. like he's trying to drum up his own narrative uh, while working for the federal government or something. So if I understand correctly, this John Sullivan guy who goes by Jaden X, who sold the video footage of Ashley Babbitt being shot and killed to uh, CNN and MSNBC, you knew him before he was a Black Lives Matter and Antifa um, guy. Antifa, you know, was supposed to stand for anti-fascist, which is ironic mm-hmm. because they actually promote fascism. But anyway, fascism. yeah, and he had been at some um, uh, rally or some demonstration or disturbance in Provo, Utah, which is, I guess, in the Salt Lake City metro area, uh, where a guy right next to Sullivan had shot somebody in a truck. Yeah, he was, Sullivan was actually arrested that day on related charges. Yeah. And then, of course, released directly after. But he was arrested that exact same day that Jesse Taggart shot the innocent bystander driving in his truck. I mean, so John Sullivan has never been good news. And he actually has been ostracized before that by Black Lives Matter groups and from actual Antifa groups because they even thought that he was a planter, that he was a psyop. I mean, so wow. the left doesn't trust him. The right doesn't trust him. Anybody on both sides of the aisle, they just don't trust him. He actually was banned from protesting in Seattle, Washington, because he had such a bad reputation out there for drumming things up and for causing violence. So they basically banned him because they didn't want that violence out there and they didn't want things to get stirred up from John Sullivan. So he has quite the uh, reputation among the left and the right for being an agitator. Okay. Um, so that's, that's kind of the thumbnail sketch of John Sullivan who uh, was doing some very sketchy things uh, that day. I've seen the video of him, for some reason, trying to cajole the police officers there, guarding the double doors from getting into the inner sanctum to just leave, to just stop doing their jobs, uh, to just uh, shirk their responsibility to protect members of Congress and just leave. And, of course, they weren't, you know, they weren't interested in, but he was in the right place at the right time to uh, the videotape the shooting of Ashley Babbitt. So this Zachary Alam guy, am I saying his name right? Yes, you are. Okay, Zachary Alam, who was uh, trying to uh, uh, break the uh, the glass panes in the double doors, well, What what is the deal with him? So Zachary Alam is a, he's had agitating problems in the past at other riots across the country in New York City. I believe that's where he's from. 
And he's been seen, I mean, at riots all across the country multiple, on multiple occasions. I mean, he is known for being an agitator, and that's something that people don't like to talk about. And I actually, I've had the chance to talk to a lot of the January 6th detainees in the uh, D.C. Gulag, and two of them reported to me that he actually was bragging about how he was anti-fascist when he was in prison with them and how he was bragging about how he set this all up and he did this and he did that. So, I mean, he was very open about, you know, being an agitator and being an openly anti-fascist and having that ideology or that leaned more left wing, which is not what the media reported on him. And this was in prison to two inmates that are actually still in the D.C. gulag. And what we're seeing right now within the system is anybody that is arrested that they do not want to talk, they are actually transferring them prisons back to their home state or just transferring them. And they'll sit there for about a month and they'll transfer them to another prison. Is, and that's what they're doing with Zachary Alam after he told two of the prisoners inside of the D.C. prison that he was related, that he was Antifa affiliated. They actually transferred Zachary Alam out. Yeah. And they've done this to multiple prisoners because they don't want them talking and they don't want all of this information coming out. But Zachary Alam is not good news. And yeah. he actually uh, stated that he was going to be the one that went through that window. That was his plan is because he broke all the windows out himself. And upon breaking that last window pane, his glasses, so his helmet actually shifted and it knocked his glasses down. So he had to take just a moment to readjust his glasses. And then he intended to go through that window pane. But in the meantime, as he was readjusting his glasses, Ashley Babbitt had jumped up through the window and had gotten shot. So, I mean, realistically, he was the one that would have been shot that day if he just didn't readjust his glasses. Wow. And um, that would have been a whole different ball game. You know, the uh, the – Capitol Police officer shooting an Antifa guy. That would have been a whole yeah, different exactly. kettle of fish there. It would have been a whole different narrative that was painted. And it just really shows you that these people do not care about the truth. The only thing they care about is winning this narrative. I mean, January 6th, I see it as their their baby narrative. You know, they want to pass these post-9-11 type bills yeah, and sure. more versions of this, the Patriot Act. And that's what they're using this for is that the people that are benefiting most from this is the national security apparatus. And, I mean, they're going to expand the, you know, the viewing bills. They're going to expand everything they can. And one thing I would like to touch on, because not a lot of people know about it, is the the way that they were able to indefinitely detain these January 6th detainees on a crime that constitutes about six months maximum, and they've been in pretrial detainment for over a year, is it's a 2011 bill that Congress had passed. And I'm not sure on the very specific, I mean, on the name of it, but in the specifics of the bill, it talks about how the U.S. government can hold anybody they want, any United States citizen, indefinitely charged with no crime and pretrial detainment. So they're using this bill as a loophole, and they're also using a 1988 KKK bill because they're going with the white, na- the white nationalist and the white supremacist narrative. So they're using these two bills in unison to actually be able to legally treat the prisoners the way that they are treating them right now. Well, the 2011 kind of sounds like the Patriot Act. Um, I, I don't know if it's a different bill, um, but that's kind of what it sounds like. Um, and we know out of the over 700 people who have been arrested, some of whom, you know, for just being in the Capitol grounds, not even going in the building, uh, around 80 are, are still held uh, without bond. Um, you mentioned earlier something about flagpole guy. What, what can you tell me about this guy? 
Yeah, so the, the man wielding the flagpole was actually helping Zachary Alam while he was breaking the windows. He's, he's videoed in, uh, in my clip actually stabbing the glass windows after Zachary Alam hits him so he can knock the panes out. So it kind of seemed like it was a coordinated effort is Zachary Alam would shatter the window enough to where it would be loose, and then flagpole uh, guy would basically jab the window and try and flip the pane out of the window. Yeah. And he did this to every single window almost that he was hitting. And then finally, Zachary Alam, upon finally smashing the last window for the second time, the window pane fell out. And that's when they saw their opportunity. Yeah. Okay. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me. How long do you think you and Ashley Babbitt were there before she decided to um, try to get up in that window pane? to the right of the double doors to try to, you know, deal with her claustrophobia? I would say approximately about 10 minutes is we arrived at the doors and it was just, you know, me and her alone. And it took, took quite a while for it to fill in, but it filled in fairly quickly. And then it began to escalate as Zachary Alam got involved and as the flagpole man got involved and a few others. Um, and as John Sullivan when John Sullivan got there, it was really weird. Is that's kind of when it really started to escalate? Is because he was actively inciting, actively encouraging them to break the windows and telling the cops to move and saying that he's seen people get hurt. He doesn't want them to get hurt. So quite literally, threatening these cops with a veil threat, saying, "Hey, I've seen what happens if you don't move. So you guys should move." Is essentially what he's saying, and that's yeah. threatening a police officer. And he did this for a few minutes, and eventually they actually slid out of the way. And one thing I would really like to touch on that isn't talked nearly enough is, in my footage, you can tell that Officer Yetter is actually looking diagonally through the glass. He's not looking at Zachary Alam breaking the window. He looks through the glass, and all of a sudden you see this, you know, very surprised expression on his face, and he ducks. And he pushes his other two officers down the stairs, at least towards the, uh, the stair area. And that's because it lines up with Michael Byrd's handgun is Michael Byrd was lying in wait and he was actually aiming it directly in the vicinity of friendly. So he was pointing his handgun in the direct direction of officers and they noticed. So they began to slide each other over because they knew that something was about to happen, even though they had the orders to just stand there and to keep the peace. But Michael Byrd really, I mean, he had other things in mind. Clearly, as he was aiming at his own officers, he really didn't care who he injured. But as Ashley Babbitt went up through that window, is I mean, he blatantly executed her. He was hiding behind a wall. The only verbal warnings came from me and John Sullivan, but we were on the opposite side of the room closest to Michael Bird, and nobody could even hear us is because it was so loud in the room, I could hardly even hear John Sullivan yelling there was a gun. And I began yelling, and nobody could hear us. So there really was no verbal warning. Oh, my goodness. No, I never thought there was a verbal warning. Um, But that's shocking that the three police officers on your side of the double doors do notice Michael Byrd's arm out with a gun in his hand, and they duck. I, I, I didn't yep, realize and by that. that time that they duck, it's it's too late. As they duck out, they push each other, and then the cert team begins uh, begins coming up the stairs. Which Michael Bird and his Lester Holt interview actually lied about, saying that the cert team was not responsive and they didn't make it on time. But they were in the room about to clear the room when Michael Bird took that shot. And upon taking the shot, you see 
in my video, I get down and you can hear someone say, is there an active shooter? And that's me because the way that the cert team and the officers were responding, it didn't seem like it was a friendly that fired the shot. So one of the cert officers actually aims his rifle through the windows where Michael Byrd just shot yeah. because he didn't know it was a friendly and he was ready to shoot somebody. And upon, you know, identifying that it was a friendly, you can hear him say blue, 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 or police, police, police. Um, and he throws a thumb up and that one confused a lot of people, but that's his signal to confirm that it was a friendly on the opposite side of the door. But I mean, it just shows you that Michael Byrd was not in communication with any of the officers in the surrounding areas. And if he was, he didn't, I mean, he didn't tell them what he was about to do. There was no verbal warning from him. The only warning was him aiming his firearm at his own officers. And they were the only ones that got warning enough to actually realize what was about to take place. So I noticed in the video, uh, actually the video that I saw on Nick Searcy's uh, movie, Capital Punishment, the movie.com, I notice that one of these guys on the cert team, and they look very different from the Capitol Hill cops. They're they're kind of dressed military like, right? Yeah, I, they're I, in full tactical gear. I notice as soon as Michael Bird shoots Ashley Babbitt, one of these guys raises his rifle and points it in Michael Bird's direction because mm-hmm. he, he doesn't know what's going on other than he just saw an innocent person get shot. You know. Yeah, well, and that's that's the reality of it. Is I mean, even from if you're familiar with Real Clear Politics, their most recent report is they just came out with internal documents that it shows that they didn't even interview Mike Bird about this shooting. I mean, he didn't answer any questions about it. He refused to cooperate. Right. Yet they cleared him from an internal investigation, anyways. And I, I mean, I've talked to the National Police Association about this. I've talked to multiple police associations, and they all have the exact same thing to say: is that. There is no way you can justify this. I mean, he skipped all six paradigms of the use of force paradigm. And, I mean, he went from zero past six in a matter of two seconds. I mean, he did not give anyone any warnings other than him aiming his own firearm at friendlies, which that doesn't seem like a very effective warning. And the reality of it is is he could have easily shot and killed anyone in that room if he would have just missed Ashley Babbitt. If he would have missed her, it would have caused a ricochet. And it would have a hundred percent hit somebody else, probably one of his own guys as well with the vicinity that they were in. I mean, so he really had no regard. It was pure recklessness. I mean, I, I really do believe that Michael Bird went there that day and he wanted to kill somebody. Is I mean, he had a problem in twenty eighteen. He left his Glock twenty two in a bathroom stall, which has no safety on it. Those Glocks, the police issue Glocks, he left it in a Capitol bathroom stall. Right. So the reality of the situation is, is if he would have been held accountable for his, you know, his actions, leaving this gun in a Capitol bathroom stall in a secure building, then he wouldn't have been there to shoot and kill Ashley Babbitt. And Ashley Babbitt would still be alive today. There's also a photo of Michael Byrd in either the Senate chamber or the House chamber uh, from a few minutes before he shot Ashley Babbitt with his mm-hmm. gun out. He's got his gun drawn. He's got his finger on the trigger. And he is pointing it. And if his finger had... To press the trigger a little bit, he would have shot one or more members of Congress because he was being reckless in where he was pointing this gun with his finger on the trigger. Yeah, well, in the entire time of him running throughout the uh, the congressional doors to the Senate chamber, I mean, he had his finger on the trigger, and he was aiming at, like you said, a colleague, that congressman. Yeah. And if I was a congressman, I don't want to 
I don't want someone like that to protect me, somebody that doesn't even have basic finger control over their gun or know, you know, the typical safety standards for these firearms or handling them. So it really is crazy to me that this man is still on the police force and is still receiving a paycheck, especially after he murdered a woman in cold blood, and everybody can see it for what it is, is he's being protected by those up top. And I'd argue it's Nancy Pelosi. Is Nancy Pelosi is in charge of the Capitol Police, and he's the, the, uh, the lead of security within the House chamber. So, you know, there's someone with lots of power protecting him and pushing these internal investigations. It's, I've never seen, I would argue that Michael Byrd shooting Ashley Babbitt was the most documented uh, use of excessive force case, I mean, all throughout history, and especially it being in the U.S. Capitol, one of the most high-profile shootings. And we all know with high-profile shootings, the identity of the officer is always released within 48 hours, but yet they still kept his identity private. And then even after I released it publicly in February 14th, I released it on that date specifically because... I had just found out that multiple mainstream outlets were working together to suppress his identity. They knew who he was, but they just didn't want to name him yeah. because they were protecting him. And so yeah. this was all the mainstream media. It was all the government and they were just protecting him. And I said, yeah, no, that's, that's not going to fly. I released his identity on multiple occasions with more evidence and more evidence every single time. And up until the point of where a Sergeant of arms employee slipped up during a hearing, an official Congress hearing, and said Michael Byrd's name, Yeah, that's when they realized they could no longer protect him and couldn't silence me being an independent journalist, so they scheduled his plus interview with Lester Holt, where he continuously lied about what took place that day. And it was quite the fluff interview. Um, speaking with Taylor Hansen, independent journalist whose uh, byline has been in a bunch of different places, about January 6th and what happened on January 6th. We, we, we have more questions about uh, Michael Byrd and Ashley Babbitt. We're going to get to uh, Officer Brian Sicknick also. Um, but just let me just say here for just a moment, if you've tried to buy a car recently, you realize there's such a chip shortage out there that you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for anywhere near where you live. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live, that's where Red River Your Way comes in. Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including the freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online, and they'll drive it to you no matter where you are. Red River Your Way wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. That's why they've added technology to their website that puts you in complete control of your payment options and allows you to complete the entire purchase process online. But don't worry, Red River experts are still right here to help you every step of the way if you have any questions. Red River Your Way makes it so easy. As you browse their selection, you'll see each vehicle has a button that says Explore Payment Options on it. Clicking that button guides you through a few easy questions that then create personalized payment options you have full control over. All you have to do is adjust your preferences, and all the math happens automatically so you can determine what monthly payment works best for your budget. Red River Your Way makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom, the dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door anywhere in the continental United States, no matter where you live, redriveryourway.com. You'll be glad you did. All right, Taylor Hansen. Independent journalists, we're talking about January 6, 2021 at the U.S. Capitol. 
talking about um, what I believe was the murder of Ashley Babbitt by Officer Michael Byrd. Um, so he recently found out, as you said, not just from Real Clear Politics, uh, but also from JustTheNews.com, John Solomon's outfit. Uh, it's widely reported that uh, Michael Byrd refused to give a statement written or oral to the D.C. police who are investigating the shooting, found out that even if there's a shooting at the Capitol, it's the D.C. police that do the uh, kind of like internal affairs investigation. Um, I watched the interview that Michael Byrd did with Lester Holt on NBC News a few months ago, um, and Lester Holt certainly was not an antagonist. Uh, He was trying to uh, make it good for Michael Byrd, trying to help him through the process. And yet, Michael Byrd was as nervous as a cat on a hot tin roof. Uh, His eyes kept darting from left to right. He looked like uh, he was just having a very difficult time getting through a very friendly interview. Uh, But recently, somebody took a clip about 30 seconds out of that interview in which he admits, he confesses, he didn't know whether Ashley Babbitt was male or female, couldn't see her hands, no idea it was in the backpack, no idea what she was doing. Um, to me, how do you justify shooting someone if you have no idea what the person's doing? Well, honestly, Doc, it's, there is no justification. As I come from a family of law enforcement, and that's really what's made this situation so difficult for me as well is is coming from a family of good cops and from, I mean, cops with integrity going to, you know, the Capitol on January 6th, and not just Michael Byrd, but multiple cops throughout the crowd that day. I mean, multiple people were murdered, and that's the reality of it. But just seeing the way that the police officers treated protesters that just wanted to, I mean, essentially use their First Amendment, use their God-given rights. And I've never seen anything like that covering riots throughout over two years. And Michael Byrd, I mean, there is no justifying what he did to Ashley Babbitt. And he actually, like you said, is he really struggled with that Lester Holt interview, even though we know it was pre-recorded. They probably went through it dozens of times to get it just right. And even with the one that they did release, I mean, his eyes were spotty. You could tell he was lying. And he lied on multiple occasions throughout that uh, entire interview. As he talks about one, one area in specifically of where he – can't see Ashley Babbitt. He didn't even know if she was a woman or a man up until later that night when he was briefed on who he had just shot and killed. And, I mean, obviously that in itself is enough for a prosecution right there. You didn't, you couldn't even tell who you shot. You, they posed absolutely no threat to you, and you didn't know if they posed a threat to you. You didn't know anything about this person, not even their gender. So there really is no justifying it, especially when he steps forward after lying in wait and shoots an unarmed woman, and then he goes on a fluff interview and co- directly contradicts his prior statements that he made through his lawyer, Mark Schimmel, who also also represents uh, Deschenko with the Steele dossier. So it kind of shows wow. you the kind of lawyers that are representing this person is typical establishment lawyers that protect their own. Because the establishment does a very good job at this, and Michael Byrd being cleared is a perfect example of this. Is He's being protected by very, very powerful people and they don't want to see him go down because if he goes down, it's going to open up, you know, tens of others' investigations. People are going to want to see the security footage, and that's really what they're trying to protect and keep from the American public 
is the 14,000 hours of footage because they know that it shows police using extreme force and actually killing multiple people within the crowd that day. Okay, and we want to get to that. We want to get to what happened in the uh, in the tunnel uh, there off of the West Terrace, uh, what happened to Roseanne Boyland. Uh, you, you are a, a wealth of information today. We appreciate you staying on with us. Um, but for my listeners' benefit, what specifically um, did Lieutenant Michael Byrd say in the NBC Lester Holt interview months, months after January 6th that contradicted what he said through his attorney, Mark Schimmel? So what he said that contradicted is it was, I believe it was two statements. And one of the statements, the one that really caught my eye was he talked about uh, the statement through Mark Schmell, the first statement that was officially released without his name when you were protecting his identity, was that the backpack that Ashley Babbitt was wearing compounded to his fears. So that's essentially why he decided to shoot is because she had a backpack and she was coming through the window with a backpack. And he also says that uh, he couldn't see the people within the room. All he could see was that a crowd was filling in. He could see the top of the people's heads filling in. So that directly contradicts what he said in Lester Holt, saying that he couldn't see anyone. He couldn't see Ashley Babbitt at all. He didn't know if she was a female or male. And and then he talks about her backpack as well. And he doesn't even mention that it compounded onto his fears. But in the prior statement, it completely did. So it's really interesting to see that his statements change over time. and They've done a really bad job at covering this up. But if he says in his first interview with, well, not interview, but his first statement, he claims that the backpack is what led him to shoot Ashley Babbitt, essentially. But then in the second statement, he says that he couldn't even tell if it was a woman or a female. He couldn't see his fellow officers directly behind Ashley Babbitt. But in the area that he was at and from the trajectory he was looking, is it, was, it would be impossible for him to tell that Ashley Babbitt had a backpack on without seeing that his officers are right there because they were right next to her and her backpack area. So he's caught in a lie, essentially, of him saying that he did not know his officers were in that room. He 100% knew that his officers were right there because yeah. he could see Ashley Babbitt, and he's lied about it. And, and, and again, lying about... He's either lying initially when he says through his attorney that the backpack concerned him, or he's lying later to Lester Holt, saying backpack. I had no idea it was in the backpack. Um, exactly. Yeah, and it's, I'm not sure which one he's lying on. Yeah. But we can assume that he's lying in in one of these two statements because they don't add up. They're they directly contradict each other. Exactly. Exactly. Now, one of the things I noticed because when I watched. Um, Nick Searcy's Capital Punishment, the movie, dot com. Um, and, you know, I had seen video footage of Ashley Babbitt being killed before, but it seemed like it was so many months later. I don't know if I've seen the same footage or seen a little bit more expanded footage than I'd seen before. But one of the things I noticed was after she was shot and fell to the floor, there are several law enforcement officers standing around and no one, no one tries to give her any kind of um, CPR, any attention, any, they're just kind of staring at her. And, and, you know, 
I've seen so many videos of violent criminals lunging at police and police having no uh, choice but to shoot these violent criminals. And when the criminal hits the asphalt, you're talking about outside in a parking lot somewhere or on a sidewalk or whatever, immediately the police uh, do a 180. They go from being somebody has to shoot somebody to somebody who's trying to give medical attention. They're trained to give uh, shots fired, need an ambulance. But when Ashley Babbitt gets killed, I mean, are the Capitol Hill police and the CRT team or whatever it's called not trained to give medical assistance to somebody who's just been shot? That's one of the weirdest things I've ever seen in my life, and I I brought it up to uh, Nick Searcy when I interviewed him the other day about his movie, uh, and he thought it was so strange. He was wondering if these people actually are our law enforcement or if they're just actors or something. Uh, can, Can you help walk us through what happened after she was shot? Yeah, well, after she was shot, just like you said, is one thing I'd like to touch on first is after Michael Byrd stopped hiding and took a step forward and and murdered Ashley Babbitt, he actually ran the other way. So instead of like what you said is flipping 180 and applying medical care or medical aid, he turned around and ran the opposite way because he knew what he just did. I mean, he murdered a woman and he knew it. He knew exactly what he just did and realized, okay, I got to get out of here. And he ran. And then, like you said, is, is none of these officers administer medical aid. The only people that were trying to administer medical aid, I was on the ground trying to help Ashley. There was, and there was two other people. We call them parrot media. And then there was one medic to the left of me. And both these people were trained medics as well. Okay. And so I was trying to unravel Ashley's scarf, and I was shining a light on her wound and trying to find it. We were trying to identify where she had gotten shot. Yeah. And she had a, two layers on and a scarf, so there wasn't a lot of blood. And the way that the bullet traveled is it actually traveled across her chest and stayed, but it went into the right side of her body, and she was shot on the left. So there wasn't an exit wound, so there wasn't a lot of blood, so it was really hard for us to identify where it came from. But we, for, I mean, for about a minute, you can see us on the ground, you know, screaming and telling them to help us, and we're, we're trying to identify where her gunshot wound is. And the only people trying to help her are the people that were in that room that day, is a journalist and you know, two other people that have a little bit of medical training and we're trying to save this woman's life. And these cops are just standing by and watching and, you know, they're in shock. They don't know what the hell they're doing and they're just standing around. And then they actually told us that we need to stop applying medical care to her because they're the ones trained to do it and they can do a better job and that they can help her. They can save her. So, and then we naturally stop applying medical care because we trust them and that we think that they're going to do their jobs. But no, they just stood around after we, they, they got us off of her. Um, they just let her lay there and die. And I mean, she was, I watched the life drain out of her eyes right before, um, as I was leaving, uh, I, I remember I was leaning over the railing and waiting for the officers to help her, yelling at the officers to help her. And they were just standing around. They didn't know what to do. All the Sergeant arms employee did was pick her up and readjust her and, and then put on some nylon gloves. And that's all he did. He didn't touch her a single time. And, I mean, they all just seriously watched her bleed out. I mean, they didn't care to help her. And it was really a horrifying thing to see. Is I mean, I watched her life drain out of her eyes. And, I mean, she could have potentially gotten help. Who would, who would have known if you had someone there that actually could have provided medical care or cared to? 
they could have prevented something. And the cops actually, one thing I'd like to say is it wasn't just that where they were incompetent on is guarding the window or applying medical care is they actually contaminated the crime scene on three separate occasions is after, after they carried Ashley Babbitt, the cert team down the stairs, upside down, like a dead animal where, I mean, her wound was in her left anterior shoulder and they carried her upside down. So it really shows that these people had no regard for her life. They knew she was dead. They didn't care. And they just carried her like a dead dog. And then they, uh, there's video of the officers contaminating the crime scene is the first officer, he comes around and he steps in the blood puddle. And another officer is like, yo, you just stepped in that. And he's like, oh, shit. And he wipes his foot off. And then the second one is he throws uh, Ashley Babbitt's beanie. She was wearing an OB brewery beanie. It was her favorite bar and restaurant. And she threw that right over the blood pile. And then you have the sergeant arms employee who looked like he was trying to help, but actually did the exact opposite, throw his nylon gloves that he didn't use a single time into the blood pile as well. So they actively contaminated the crime scene, covering it up directly after they murdered a woman and didn't provide her medical aid. I've never seen anything like it. I mean, I honestly, I still think about it on a daily basis. It never really leaves my mind what I saw that day in the Capitol. Well, it sounds like to me, and I'm no attorney, but it sounds like to me that when you and another guy are trying to render medical aid to a woman who's just been shot, and you have law enforcement saying, okay, you guys get out of the way. We're trained. We know how to do this. Maybe we can save her life. And you guys are like, okay, we'll go right ahead. And then they don't. Um, that sounds like aiding and abetting a, a murder after the fact. I mean, that, that sounds like, because, you know, there, there's no statute of limitations on murder. And Michael Byrd surely must one day help be held accountable for this. Uh, but surely I would think, so do these men who stop her from getting medical treatment by saying, we're trained, we can do it, and then they don't do it and let her bleed out. That's got to be aiding and abetting after the fact. I mean, at least there's probable cause, I would think. No, I completely agree with you. As, as I genuinely believe is being there that day and watching these officers' negligences, I mean, they knew what they were doing, and they knew that they weren't helping this woman, and that's their job is to help this woman. So in reality, the reality of the situation is, is they, they are complicit in the death of Ashley Babbitt. And it's, it's really alarming that there were so many officers there that all felt the need to not do anything. And I mean, the most passion that I saw out of an officer that day was officer Yetter yelling at people to clear out because he, he, he thought EMT couldn't get there if there was this many people in the hallway. I mean, that was the most passion out of any of the officers in that area that I saw and actively trying to help. The only one that was trying to help was Officer Yetter. And, I mean, he was a rookie from what I understand. And, it, I mean, it's really alarming to me that nobody in that room helped other than the civilians around. And especially Michael Byrd, the fact that he turned tail and ran, it really just speaks volumes to his character and the type of person that he is. And even this uh, Officer Yetter, though, once you guys say, oh, okay, we'll get out of the way so law enforcement can render medical medical aid, he doesn't even. Um... So, uh, yeah, Officer Yetter was on the stairs at that time. He had actually gone all the way down to the stairs, and the CERT team were the ones that were supposed to be rendering medical aid. Okay. And the Sergeant Arms employee, they were the ones that said they were going to render medical aid just to clear that up. But Yetter was actually down at the bottom of the stairs, and you could see that he was freaking out because he didn't know what the hell to do. 
And those three officers that were guarding the door, I mean, they all seemed like fairly young cops, and they were all pretty nervous. Um, it really seemed like they were just too inexperienced to handle a situation like that. Okay, now the CERT team, um, are, are they Capitol Hill Police? Are they D.C., Metro Police? Uh, who are they? So the CERT team is it's basically, I don't want to call it the special operations team, but it's essentially the special, you know, the special operations team for the Capitol. So when anything like this happens, is they're the tactical team in charge of clearing out the Capitol, in charge of taking control of, you know, high-profile events, or, you know, high danger events, anything above those lines. And that's another thing that Mike Bird lied about in his Lester Holt interview, is he said that the CERT team is the last line of defense, and they didn't make it on time. But the CERT team was quite literally in the room with Ashley Babbitt when she was shot and killed. Yeah. So they were there, and they were about to clear that room. And the reality of it is, is nobody would have went through that window when you have a bunch of people pointing rifles. That's the reality of it. Nobody is that dumb. And they had that room under control, and they were about to clear it out. And then Michael Byrd decided he wanted to shoot and, uh, and kill an unarmed woman. So in the CERT team, like you said, is he raises his gun and points it in Byrd's direction because he thinks it's an unfriendly. He doesn't right. think it's a cop because he can't fathom in his mind why they would just shoot that woman who was unarmed going through a window that had no way to injure anybody with both of her hands on the window pane. So, I mean, and all the officers in that area, they know that, that the shooting was unjustified, but they're scared to talk out, and I can't blame them. Oh, absolutely. Uh, CERT team apparently stands for a Community Emergency Response Team, but like you say, uh, under mm-hmm. the direction of the uh, of the Capitol Hill Police, kind of kind of like a SWAT team, I guess. Um, yeah, they're, they're essentially the SWAT team for the Capitol. Wow, 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 my goodness. Um, so... Where is the best place for somebody to go, other than listening to this interview, uh, to get the your comprehensive uh, report on what happened that day with you and Ashley Babbitt and, and Michael Byrd? Or, or is this interview the first uh, comprehensive uh, account that you have given? Um, I have given a few comprehensive accounts, but a lot of them actually just don't get aired. Yeah. Because I seem to be doing it with the wrong people that don't want eyewitness stories out. Um, so this really is the first time that I've spoken in detail, at least in this much detail, um, on an interview about the situation. But wow. I, I did an initial breakdown article when I wrote for Gateway Pundit. My writing profile is Taylor Hansen on Gateway Pundit. And you guys can see that there. I believe I published that on January 28th. And Trump ended up using that in his uh, in a footnote in his impeachment hearing for January 6th to essentially disprove what the establishment was saying. But all my other work can be found at taylorhanson.substack.com, uh, and that's where I released that most recent piece on Sicknick. And then my Twitter and social medias are at TaylorUSA, T-A-Y-L-E-R-U-S-A. And I consistently post. That's where I do my most, you know, most of the investigations and most of the videos. That's where I actually uploaded the video of Ashley Babbitt. Okay, very good. Um, and it's an honor to have you on today and to have been given the wherewithal to allow you the time to kind of develop exactly what happened that day. Um, now, you couldn't be at all, all places at all times, but you have interviewed a couple of people who saw Officer Brian Sicknick that day and the narrative about what happened to officer Sicknick 
uh, has really changed um, since uh, January 6th and 7th. Uh, if you could tell my, my audience um, what initially was the official word on Officer Brian Sicknick and what changed and, and what you were able to uh, to uncover, we'd really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Well, after Brian Sicknick died on January 7th, the official narrative was that he had his head bashed in by Trump supporters with a fire extinguisher. Yeah. And upon about a week later, um, that's when Cassandra Fairbanks with the Gateway Pundit, and she now works with the Tim Pool Show, is she came out with an in-depth article explaining that, you know, he did not die from blunt force trauma, and she linked the coroner's report. And the coroner's report even said that there was no physical damage um, on the exterior or interior of his body. And so that really raised questions, okay, well, so they didn't kill him with a fire extinguisher. So in the new narrative that the left in the establishment kind of evolved and worked together to concoct and that the media pushed upon the American people was that he had two strokes due to a Trump supporter spraying him in the face with pepper spray. And then we proved that to be inaccurate, and we actually have a video that we're going to be releasing soon of the Capitol Police spraying Officer Sicknick with spray. So the only video I've seen is actually of the Capitol Police spraying him. And then that narrative came crashing down when I just released my most recent piece with two eyewitness interviews. And the first eyewitness of the day, um, his name is Rod Taylor. And around, I want to say, 3 p.m. Um, from his witness statement, he talks about how he was standing around. He had been at the Capitol until about 8.30 a.m. Um, listening to Trump speak, and he had just came over. And that's when he heard people saying, hey, this, this guy needs help. You know, this officer needs help. And he saw he went over to the doors of the Capitol and helped multiple Trump supporters. And no officers were helping Officer uh, Sicknick. It was only Trump supporters that were carrying him out of the Capitol at around 3 p.m. And they carried him to a, a group of about four to six police officers and said, hey, this guy needs medical attention. You know, he needs help. Get him help, please. And Rod Taylor, he hadn't had a lot of medical experience, but even he in his witness statement says that you could tell that something was visibly wrong with Sicknick in his face, that his face was a little bit slouched. You know, he was he looked sick. He was pale. And he upon handing him off to the officers, he was hoping that they you know would run through the fast protocol, which is essentially the protocol that is required that you implement after someone has a stroke to minimize the damages and to get them the help they need. Yeah. And so in his head, upon helping him, and, I mean, he put his hands on Officer Sicknick's shoulders and looked him in the eye. And that's one reason why they don't want to release Sicknick's body cam, and they never will, is because it's going to prove all these eyewitness accounts right. And he, I mean, he walked him to the police, and he got him help and told them multiple times, this man needs help. Please get him help. And they said, yeah, we will. Leave us alone. You know, go away. And then my second eyewitness, Chris Alberts, at around 7.25 to 7.50 p.m., as he was being detained, he was arrested, and he was sat on a curb, and that's when he saw Officer Sicknick with some officers, and they were trying to give him water, and he heard an officer yell, hey, brother, uh, hey, Sicknick, are you okay, brother? And that's when he, you know, kind of knew something was going on, and so Chris Albert's uh, background is that he was a combat lifesaver. I mean, he's a medic in the military, he is better trained than any of these cops are medical-wise. And on multiple occasions, he said, hey, he does not look good, guys. You need to get him some help. 
And then, you know, he said, okay, well, if you guys aren't going to get him help, at least cuff me in the front so I can help him. I have medical training. Let me help until medical gets here because he needs it. And then on a third occasion, he said, you guys, like, he does not look good. He looks like he's about to die. I mean, he needs help. And they said they told him to shut up and to mind his own business and that medical was on the way. And this was around almost 8 p.m. And so what there, and then he ended up collapsing Officer Sicknick inside of the Capitol at 10 p.m. from the, the official USCP uh, Capitol Police report. And they said that he collapsed inside the Capitol at 10 p.m. and then died the later the following day on January 7th at 9:30 p.m. on a ventilator before any of his family members could see him, which was is kind of. I mean, pretty interesting to me, the fact that none of them were able to see him or to talk to him about what he had experienced that day. And really what it looks like and what the evidence shows with the eyewitness statements is that the Capitol Police, they're guilty of negligent homicide. I mean, they did not get him the medical care that was needed. Is he? It looks like he had his first stroke around 3 p.m. And to put it in perspective for you, every minute that a stroke goes untreated, up to 2 million brain cells die. And every uh, hour that a stroke goes untreated, you age on an average to about 3.2 years. So the seven hours that he did not receive medical treatment, when the Capitol Police multiply, they told multiple protesters that they were going to get him medical care, and the protesters were more concerned about him than the police were, is in the matter of the seven hours between 3 p.m., my first witness seeing him, and then him collapsing in the Capitol, is he would have aged over 20 years mentally because they had not gotten him. They didn't enact the FAST protocol that you do when somebody has a stroke, is they just negated to get him help. And they knew something was wrong with him, but they just kept trying to give him water. And that's all they did is if somebody, if you're pouring water down somebody's face and they can't even drink it, you should probably assume that there's something wrong more than just, you know, a concussion or one of these small minor injuries. Yeah. So really what all the evidence shows in this most recent article is that, I mean, the Capitol Police are responsible for negligent homicide. So now we have proven that they have the, the only deaths that took place that day were taken by the Capitol Police and the Metropolitan Police Department. As nobody died at the hands of Trump supporters. Nobody was severely injured at the hands of Trump supporters. The only people that died that day were killed by the police. Wow. Wow. Um so the thing that doesn't make any sense to me is he was one of them, and they're saying, hey, brother, are you all right? But then, I mean, how hard would it have been to call a medic? Something- well, the, the reality of it is, is EMS was already on the scene. They just didn't take him over to EMS to get help. There were ambulances there that day. There were EMS on the scene throughout the crowd because they were carrying out dead bodies all throughout the day. And that's another thing the media won't talk about is them carrying out Kevin Greeson and Benjamin Phillips and all the, and Roseanne Boyland is, I mean, there was EMS on the scene, but they just didn't get their own officer help. And it's really terrifying to think that, you know, with the Capitol police, they're supposed to be a brotherhood, right? And they're not even willing to get their brother help. And what's really alarming to me and what I really think took place, I mean, Sicknick is a registered Trump voter and not a lot of people know that. And, I mean, I can imagine they, he probably wasn't very happy with what was taking place that day. His, his cops were being overly brutal and actually killing Trump supporters as he is a Trump supporter. I mean, and he actively spoke out on multiple occasions about what was going on. And, you know, not a lot of people hear about any of that. So it, it really is suspicious to me that 
the one officer that dies that day, and then they blame it all on the people, is he happened to be a registered Trump supporter. So I really think that might have something to do to it, and I hope it wasn't politically motivated. But in today's political climate, who knows? And one thing I'd like to uh, touch on, too, is it's very suspicious. Like Coming from a family of law enforcement, the fact that four officers have killed themselves after the Capitol riot. Yeah. Officers aren't the ones usually that tend to kill themselves. And then I dug up all these officers' voting records, and every single one of them happened to be Trump supporters. So it really just seemed like something more is going on. And, of course, I don't have the evidence to prove that, but it's definitely something that should be investigated, is why are these officers killing themselves at rates we've never seen before? Wow. Yeah, I, I wondered about that, too, but I, I didn't know what to do with that information, the, the four suicides afterwards. Because early on, the mainstream media tried to uh, clump all these numbers together and act like, uh, you know, five people were they killed were that day, day, you know, which was was not the case, obviously. So so how do you research and find out that, say, for instance, uh, Brian Sicknick was a Trump supporter, right? How does that um, work? So you can you can access official voter rolls. Um, we, we went through and we obtained his voter ID information. Yeah. And that's where we're able to see that he had voted for Trump. Wow. Um, so, I mean, it was it was really interesting. Once we found that out, it kind of opened up the door to, whoa, this could be an entirely different thing than we think it is. As you know, these officers could be potentially killing their own cops on purpose. And I don't want to put that out there, but that's the reality of it is, is we saw the negligence and I mean, just the pure violence, just the unprecedented violence that day against protesters. And I really wouldn't put it past them you know, ousting one or four or five of their own officers. And it's a really scary thought, but when you have a federal law enforcement agency that isn't accountable to FOIAs or any requests along those lines is is they don't have to tell you anything. They can virtually hide anything, and they could run their department exactly how they want to. And Michael Byrd being cleared from an internal investigation without even one interview is a perfect example of that. That's there right. is no accountability within the Capitol Police Force because they're protected by some of the most powerful people in our country. Nancy Pelosi, Mitch McConnell, mm-hmm. uh, Dick Durbin. Well, and that's one thing that, that I'd like to touch on, and thankfully you said it, is, is it's not, this isn't a left or a right issue. It's both sides are in on this narrative. That's the reality of it. You have Mitch McConnell, you have Nancy Pelosi, you have all these people up at the top, and they're all doing the same thing to suppress the footage they're not actively calling for an independent investigation. They're not calling the January 6th clown committee out for, I mean, blatantly lying to the American people and painting their own narrative and using selective edited clips. I mean, these people are all on the same side, and they do not want the American people to truly find out what took place on January 6th. But their narrative is crumbling, and there's nothing they can do about it. If I recall correctly, it wasn't too long after January 6th, 2021, when every United States senator, 100 of them, um, came out with a declaration thanking the Capitol Police for the heroism, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the line of duty on January 6, 2021. Every one of them, all 100, you know, including some of the guys that uh, we like on the conservative side who tend to stand up and, and call people out, uh, no, not in this case. I will say the only congressmen that have actively been uh, 
doing something on this issue and that I've been in contact with and that are actually providing the truth to the American people would be Congressman Gosar and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates. I mean, they're the only ones that are really interested, and I'd say Louis Gohmert as well, but they're the only ones that are really interested in truly figuring out what took place on January 6th as everyone else is too afraid to. Nobody is in on it, and that's the reality of it. And Ted Cruz, what he said, is the perfect example. Yeah, is he? I mean, he called everyone there domestic terrorists, and then he backtracked on it. And Ted Cruz is a lawyer; he knew he was he knew exactly what he was saying when he said it. Yeah, and he did it intentionally. And that's right after Merrick Garland announced that they're going to be making mass arrests, and that anybody that that was there that day is guilty. But then they come out and they, you know, give certain people special treatment. So it really is really is an interesting thing to see these senators and these congressmen expose themselves for who they really are and how they don't support the American people. It's it's horrendous. Uh, we're speaking with Taylor Hansen. Uh, if you want to read a lot of the stuff that he has done, um, it's over at Substack.com. It's Taylor with an E and Hansen with an E. And Substack is where a lot of independent journalists have to go uh, kind of like I had to come to do a live stream podcast uh, to not be censored, uh, but he's over at Substack.com, and, and I certainly uh, recommend that you check him out there. Um, we want to talk about not only Roseanne Boyland, but a couple of names that he brought up a few minutes ago that you probably haven't heard of before, Kevin Greeson and Benjamin Phillips. That's coming up in just a moment, but I have to ask you here briefly, did Obamacare, the so-called Affordable Care Act, make your health care more expensive? Does your health insurance premium feel like a second mortgage? Does your sky-high deductible prevent you from going to the doctor? Do, do your sky-high co-pays keep you from going to the doctor? Now, if you answered yes to any of those questions, the website you need to go to, and it's called MyFamilyHealthPlan.com. When you click on that website, see these big, bold letters, Affordable Plans. Save 30 to 50% on premiums, personalized health coverage, low to no deductible, no co-pays. And then you click the button that says schedule, call now. And you book a free consultation with my friend Art Wilborn, who will make sure there are no gaps in your coverage. He also makes sure that unlike a lot of those Obamacare plans, you're not forced to cover things like abortion, which would violate your deeply held religious beliefs. Again, myfamilyhealthplan.com, affordable plans, Save 30 to 50% on premiums, personalized health coverage, low to no deductibles, no co-pays. Click the button that says schedule call now. You get a free consultation with my buddy Art Wilborn who will make sure there's no, there are no gaps in your coverage. Save money on your insurance at myfamilyhealthplan.com. You'll be glad you did. All right. Uh, Taylor Hansen. Um, some of the things you're saying, well, a lot of things you're sharing today are really shocking uh, to me and to a lot of my listeners, uh, even those of us who have seen the video of Ashley Babbitt being killed before and believing that, that Lieutenant Michael Byrd was, of course, in the wrong, should never have shot this innocent woman. There are a lot of things that you're bringing out that nobody's ever heard before because you were there. Um, what can you tell my listeners, about Roseanne Boyland, about Kevin Greeson, and about um, Benjamin Phillips. 
Yeah, so I, I mean, I have a lot to tell you guys about all three of those characters. And the reality of it is, is all three of them were killed by the Capitol Police or Metropolitan Police. Is I broke the Roseanne Boylan story officially in August. I believe it was August 13th is when I interviewed an eyewitness named Philip Anderson, who was actually alongside uh, Roseanne Boylan when they were all trampled and when the uh, overflow pile was pushed onto them. And he actually was holding Roseanne Boylan's hand in the bottom of the pile and he felt her let go. And that's when he assumed that she had died and he thought he was going to die. And that interview is available on Twitter. And I did a piece on Greg Kelly about it back in August. And then it really uh, blew up and people started to really question it. I would say in about November when Gateway Pundit did a piece um, and used my interview and then did a little bit more investigating and actually found the officer um, that is seen beating her uh, while she's on the ground with a walking stick. She's uh, going over her head. It's full strikes. And she's hitting Roseanne Boylan's lifeless body over and over and over again. Um, so, I mean, all the evidence is there. And that's one thing that the medical examiner, um, that, that's a whole other topic to get into. But he has been writing these deaths off completely inaccurately. It's, as he ruled that Roseanne Boyland died of an acute amphetamine intoxication. Yeah. So essentially a drug overdose. And I got in contact with uh, Lana Boyland, Roseanne's sister, and a few other of her family members, and they said the only thing that was in her system that day was her legally prescribed dose of Adderall, and that is an amphetamine. So that's where that report would come up. But the medical examiner just seemed to completely ignore the external wounds where she had had people pushed onto her. I mean, over 20 people were on top of her trying to actively get her out while these cops were attacking them. And there's a uh, body cam video from Metropolitan Police Department that was foia and released by Joseph McBride, uh, the lawyer that's representing a lot of these January 6th prisoners. Yeah. And in the video, it shows this officer overhead striking Roseanne Boyland on multiple occasions from a walking stick that she had taken from a Trump supporter and hitting her with her baton as well. And the officers had kicked Roseanne on multiple occasions I mean, they had no regard for her body lying there. And as Trump supporters are getting mad and they're trying to help Roseanne, trying to give her CPR, they're being pushed off. I mean, they're being attacked while they're trying to clear this area so they can get Roseanne help. And these officers are just not letting up. They're pepper spraying these people. And there's this video that came out of that FOIA request where there is a man in a, a tactical vest with a sheriff badge. And I do believe he actually is a sheriff with the police department somewhere. And he is seen trying to give Roseanne medical care and he's giving her CPR over and over and over again. And he realizes that she's dead. And um, uh, another protester pulls him off of her after he realizes that there's nothing they can do for her. And the cops began, you can see that this sheriff, the man wearing the sheriff badge is just in a daze as he realized that the Capitol police or Metropolitan police, sorry, that they had just murdered this woman and that they did it over and over and over again. I mean, they were hitting her body after she was already dead. And you can tell that he, you know, immediately goes into shock and he gets really close to these officers and he just has his hand leaned up against this wall and he's just shaking his head, you know, trying to plead with these officers to get her help. And he's just in disbelief that they just killed this woman and now they won't help this woman either. And they're pepper spraying him as he's just standing there. I mean, it's a really terrible scene. And, but all the evidence points to, and we broke the story quite a while ago is 
is that Roseanne Boylan was murdered by the Metropolitan Police Department. So it wasn't only the Capitol Police Department that was acting, you know, in ways that they shouldn't have that day. It was Metropolitan and the Capitol Police. Um, do you have any names of any officers? Um, I would have to get 100% confirmation. No, that's um, okay. For that's you, okay. But we can, I'll retouch on it a little bit later sure. um, in this interview, and I can get you a name of the officer that is responsible for hitting Roseanne Boyland. Wow. And and God bless Greg Kelly over at Newsmax for having you on a few months ago to talk about this. I, I didn't realize that. Um, yeah, Greg, Greg has been wonderful throughout this entire process. He's really given me a voice. He's given... Uh, the the family of Ashley Babbitt, a voice, especially Aaron Babbitt. And yeah. I know Aaron and their family are really grateful for everything that Greg has done covering this. Absolutely, because, um, you know, it's uh, he's bound to get some negative pushback whenever he tries to get the truth out about what actually happened that day. Um, tell me about Kevin Greeson and uh, Benjamin Phillips, because most of my listeners have never heard of them. Yeah, so Kevin Greeson and Benjamin Phillips are a part of our ongoing investigation right now. And we have the evidence that both of them were killed uh, due to concussion grenades being thrown in the crowd. Is They were ruled as natural causes, yet both of them actually went down before it was declared a riot, before any of this happened. And it was the first initial barrage of grenades, the five grenades in the crowd in under a minute and five seconds, that actually one hit. Benjamin Phillips directly um, in the face, and that led him to have a heart attack. I mean, I don't know about you, but that sure would scare me into a heart attack being hit with a grenade that separates in midair that's capable of lighting people on fire, and I actually witnessed that that day as well. Um, But, no, Kevin Greeson and Benjamin Phillips, they're really the uh, key to this puzzle right here, and we'll be releasing a piece soon enough um, that's really just going to blow this entire thing open. But we provided – um, evidence for Kevin Greeson being killed by the Capitol Police from their munitions. And now we have the evidence that Benjamin Phillips was also a victim of these Capitol Police officers. So we're going to be coming out with that really soon. And that's really just going to stir this entire January 6th narrative and everybody and what they know it as uh, completely up. It's going to flip it around. And I'm really looking forward to that because it's just the truth. And that would mean that five, all five people that were killed at the Capitol that day, Benjamin Phillips, Kevin Greeson, Roseanne Boylan, Ashley Babbitt, and Officer Brian Sicknick, is they are all deaths that are on the hands of the police. So let me ask you something. Um, not having been in the military myself, I remember as a kid growing up and watching war movies. And... Um, the army of one side would throw what's called a grenade. You pull the pin, you count to three or whatever, you throw it, and it's supposed to blow up, and it's like a, an explosive, and it kills the guys on the other side. Um, you know, that was our understanding what a grenade was. A concussion mm-hmm. grenade uh, is a relatively new term for me, obviously not a new term for people in law enforcement or uh, or people in in uh, in the military. But what can you tell us exactly about the concussion grenade? So the concussion grenades that they were using that day were extremely flammable. And what they would do is they would throw them right above the heads of people in the crowd. And then they ex- there's a munition inside that explodes and causes these two pieces of metal to separate. 
And as these two pieces separate, they fly in different directions. And a lot of the times they hit people. And the, the, as the munition separates, it creates a little mini ball of fire. And I actually had to put out, I have it on video of me putting out somebody's hood that was on fire as a grenade separates right above us and rains him in fire and his hoodie completely lights on fire and we had to sma- uh, smack it out. So, I mean, they, they definitely should not have been using concussion grenades. And from what I understand, it was actually illegal for them to do so. I'm not entirely sure on that, but with the damage that they were doing to that crowd that day, I can really see no justification in the use of a concussion grenade at any riot, let alone one at the United States Capitol where people are tightly condensed and are going to be, I mean, every single time they're throwing those concussion grenades in the air, they're hitting somebody directly. And this was a two pieces of shrapnel that are going extremely fast after an explosion is set off in the device is they have the capability to kill people and to put holes inside of people. And I recorded a video of a man with a big hole in his cheek, and he had just shoved cotton inside of it, and he was bleeding everywhere, and that was because of shrapnel from a concussion grenade. So these grenades, they have the capability to do a lot of damage, and they very easily can kill somebody, and they did that day. Wow. Wow. Well, and I do, I do have an identity for you on the officer that is seen beating uh, Roseanne Boylan overhead with a stick. Okay. Her name, she's a D.C. Metropolitan Police Department officer, and her name is Lila Morris. A female officer beating her with a stick. Yes, sir. Good grief. Yeah, a female murdering another female. That's amazing. That's amazing. And is there, is there video of that? Yes, there is video of that. It was released uh, with this, in a three-hour-long video of the tunnel, and you can see, um, I believe it's in the two-hour mark. I don't want to uh, throw out a wrong time, but Joseph McBride has been a great job at covering this, same with Gateway Pundit and a few other sources. Is if you look, it will be out there, the video of Roseanne Boyland, um, not just being beaten once, but being beaten twice in the second beating, is much more brutal, and that's the one where you can see Lila Morris striking Roseanne Boylan's body with a Trump supporter's walking stick with full force. She's bringing it above her head and smacking it down on Roseanne and doing it over and over and over again. And so this would be on uh, the um, the website of Attorney Joseph McBride, who's the one who did the Freedom of Information Act request to try to get this video released. Yes, sir. Wow. Okay. Um now back to your contention that you know you're finding it difficult to believe that it would be legal for metropolitan police department officers to um unleash flashbang grenades into a tightly packed crowd you mentioned the word riot it's my understanding everything all the evidence that I've seen is there was no riot until mm-hmm. the police started attacking the peaceful protesters the police, who were just standing there. The best there. way to put it is that the police were the riot that yeah. day. Yeah. Everyone was peaceful that day up until the police attacked them. And the reality of the situation is, is you legally have a right to defend yourself if an officer attacks you. And that's what took place that day, is when all the violence erupted and when everything really blew up to say the least is that's after the Capitol police had already killed two people within the crowd. And a lot of people just didn't know about it, but the people that did, they sure as hell did not like it. And they were mad. And that's where you see in the Roseanne Boylan situation as well in the tunnel, 
is when people really start attacking the officers, it's when they're trying to get Roseanne Boyland out from under the officers. And one thing I'd like to touch on as well is Sergeant Gonell and Harry Dunn, they are liars, of course, because they, they claim that they issued a CPR, I believe, at 1.10 p.m. Yeah. But their body cam footage, it doesn't add up with issuing her CPR. And they actually dragged her through, and they put her in, I believe it was the USCP chief's office. So what I want to know is why haven't their full body cams been released and when are they going to be released? Because that's something we should see is why did they carry someone who was already dead across the police line and then inside the Capitol? I mean, what do they do with her body? That's really what I'm interested in. My understanding is they, they, um, they put her in uh, Steny Hoyer's office, Steny Hoyer, uh, the number two guy in the U S house after uh, Nancy Pelosi. But, but the question is why? Why are you dragging a dead body in instead of calling an ambulance or something like exactly. that? Um, well, and uh, another thing I would like to say is even with the ambulances is in the situation of Ashley Babbitt, they, I stumbled out of the Capitol after she'd gotten shot, and I had been out for about 30 minutes. And I had just walked straight down um, the boulevard that's on the Capitol Road, and about 30 minutes into it, 25 to 30 minutes, that's when I saw the first ambulance come by. And that was the ambulance that transported Ashley Babbitt. So they took over 30 minutes to get Ashley Babbitt any medical care whatsoever. And by the time they got her medical care, she was dead. And this was the same thing for, you know, Roseanne Boylan, for Kevin Greeson, and for Benjamin Phillips. Is A lot of the times they didn't even use actual medical stretchers. It was Trump supporters that would roll people over onto a bike rack that day and then they would pick them up and carry them out because no cops were willing to help. So this brings up a question. Um, you've already made it clear because U.S. Capitol Police are protected by um, the leadership of both parties, of both sides of Congress, the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate, um, Apparently, they're not susceptible um, as, say, a city police department or a county sheriff's department mm-hmm. would be almost anywhere in the in the country. They're not susceptible to Freedom of Information Act requests. So, with such utter disregard for the value of human life. Um, one wonders what sort of people are being hired to be in the U.S. Capitol Police Force. One wonders what sort of vetting is done. Uh, one wonders what sort of background these people have. We don't really know anything, do we, about uh, Officer uh, Harry Dunn or Officer Aquilino Gonell or Officer Lila Morris or uh, or some of the uh, the CERT team officers who told you and another guy to stop um, trying to render medical aid to Ashley Babbitt because they're trained to do it, and then they did nothing. Do we know anything about the background of these people and 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 you know whether they have uh, some sort of rap sheet before they got uh, uh, hired to be on the U.S. Capitol Police? Well, a lot of them just don't even have any of the experience that's necessary is is the majority of them are actually diversity hires. Is the United States Capitol Police do a diversity hiring program 
And that's, I believe that's where Michael Byrd was actually hired and was through the, the diversity program. And I mean, you would think that the Capitol Police being, you know, the sole protectors of our members of Congress, our sitting president at times, they would be the, high, the, the highest trained police uh, force within the country, especially being a federal entity. But it's yeah. actually the opposite. Yeah is they're one of the worst trained police forces within the country, is what they should do is they should adopt the Seattle PDs. Um, I mean, their training program is because Seattle PD is they're one of the most highly trained officers within the country. And if they even had a quarter of what those officers had for training, they would have known not to do anything that, that they were doing at the Capitol that day. But no, these officers, is, is they all have pretty interesting backgrounds. And the most that I'm familiar with is Michael Byrd is because I, I did a lot of research on him uh, in the directly following January 6th because I was the one that identified him. And, I mean, he's gone bankrupt now. It's four times. He has severe money problems. And from what I understand, he has a gambling addiction. Don't quote me on that. Um, but, I mean, these people just are not good people. Uh, Michael Bird's wife's uh, business, her daycare business, went out of business after he had shot and killed Ashley Babbitt. I mean, these people's lives really are they're, – they're trying – to keep them together as much as they can, but they were a mess before the Capitol. And now that people are asking questions, they're really cozying up to the rich and powerful to really defend them. You know, Mark Schimmel and uh, Michael Byrd actually, Michael Byrd, you can say, profited over $136,000 off of murdering an unarmed woman because his family member, which it wasn't his family member, it was him, created a GoFundMe. Um, and he received over $136,000 in donations, and those donations were, were killing Ashley Babbitt. So, I mean, he profited hundreds of thousands from shooting an unarmed woman. So there really is no accountability. And one thing you've said that I'd like to touch on is about how the D.C. police, they're subject to FOIA requests because they're a state entity. But and then the Capitol Police, they are not subject to FOIA requests because they're a federal entity. Yeah. So it really doesn't make sense that we, we can't have access to these body cams and these 14,000 hours of footage unless you were there that day and you understand why they won't release it. They won't release it because they know that they let people in. There were magnetic locking doors. This is a standard security protocol within every single Capitol across the country. So the real question is, is who, who unlocked the magnetic locking doors from the inside? Someone obviously did. Someone let these people in. Sure. So, I mean, it really was just a huge setup in the end of the day. And for that matter, you're going to have other um, other camera vantage angles of uh, Michael Byrd uh, executing Ashley Babbitt. Exactly. Uh, you, well, and not just that, but you have the security camera from the hallway where they beat Roseanne Boylan to death and trampled her. And then you have the security cameras that would capture Kevin Greeson being hit by a concussion grenade and Benjamin Phillips being hit by a concussion grenade. And then it would also capture the negligence around Officer Sicknick. So it would quite literally prove all of my investigations right, and they already have been proven, but it would just add on to it and it would be in the public's eye now because they can only censor me so much until the truth comes out. But that's why they're so scared of releasing the 14,000 hours is they don't want to know that it was pre-planned. They don't want you to know who opened the doors for these people. And then they don't want you to see the blatant murder and brutality of all these cops that day. And very odd that this uh, Lieutenant Michael Byrd, who's gone through four bankruptcies, can afford uh, the legal representation of Mark Schimmel, who's representing uh, the mm-hmm. high-powered D.C. Uh, defense, criminal well, defense attorney. He lives in one of the richest areas in yeah. Massachusetts. I believe it's Brandywine. 
Um, I mean, he, he's very wealthy, but yet he's gone through all these bankruptcies. So there's clearly something going on here with his finances. Wait a minute. Michael Bird is, is... Yes, Michael Bird. Okay, wait a minute. He lives in Brandywine, uh, Massachusetts? Uh, not Brandywine, Massachusetts. Uh, Brandywine, I want to say... Actually, it's the state that's... So, Maryland. forgive me here, borders... Uh, PA, and then what's the state that borders it above it? Uh, the, the state above Pennsylvania is, is New York. New York. But yeah, in, in other words, if here. he's if he's ca- he, he lives in Brandywine. If he's Capitol Police, uh, it's probably Brandywine, uh, Maryland, because that would be yeah Maryland. Uh, yeah, I misspoke. It's, uh, no, that, that's okay. Maryland. That's okay. Um, no, what, what what I was talking about was was this Mark Schimmel guy is a high-powered D.C. attorney who is representing um, a guy being um, who is currently under indictment. Dushenko. Yeah, Dushenko for the uh, for the for the Russiagate uh, uh, fake steel dossier mess with, uh, under John Durham. I mean, there's no way in the world you're you're getting him uh, on the cheap, but somehow or another um, somebody's paying for him to represent uh, uh, Michael Byrd. Yeah, Brandywine is in Prince George's County, Maryland, which is, uh, you know, which, which Prince George's County, uh, Maryland, uh, borders uh, D.C. So that's a you know a suburb mm-hmm. of uh, of Washington D.C. to the to the, uh, the southeast. Um, so, what did you think about the fact that it was reported that Ashley Babbitt's body was cremated within 48 hours without approval from her family. So that, that report was actually fair, uh, just a little bit inaccurate is they did get permission. Okay. Um, but with the other victims, they actually did not get permission from what I have reported on and from what I've heard. Um, they ended up cremating virtually everyone there that died that day. Um, but the only person that I know they got permission from was from Aaron Babbitt. Um, and that situation, Aaron Babbitt's brother, I believe, actually, he is an Air Force pilot. And he personally flew to D.C. to to pick up Ashley Babbitt's ashes and to deliver her belongings um, back to Aaron in Ocean Beach, California. And that's um, that's that's what I have, have found from that situation. But, yeah, the cremation, especially of Roseanne Boylan and Kevin Greeson and uh, Benjamin Phillips, it really should raise a lot of questions because it makes it impossible to have an, an independent medical examiner's report done. And we all know that there's something going on with this medical examiner because we've proven him wrong on the cause of death multiple times. So he 100%, I mean, he miswrote and lied on these, uh, the, medical, the coroner's report for these people and their cause of death, but then they cremated them all, so now we can't have our own independent investigation done. And I know that's what, you know, Aaron Babbitt would have done. I know that's what uh, Lana Boylan, all of these victims' families, I know that they would have had an independent investigation done because they just don't believe what happened. And the reality of it is is none of these families believe the official narrative of what happened to their loved ones, and they shouldn't because the government lies, and they've really proved this throughout the narrative. But for some reason, Aaron Babbitt actually did allow the medical examiner um, did actually sign off on, cre- uh, on the cremation of Ashley Babbitt's body. I I don't know. Was he just in shock? Was he thinking, well, you know, um, 
she was shot and and there you know there's no need for an autopsy we know how she died i guess i i really just think that he didn't expect the level of cover-up revolving around his wife's death he didn't expect them to clear michael bird from an internal report yeah. with no questions asked yeah I mean, he, really, he expected accountability that's the reality of it and I don't want to speak for Aaron or anything like that. I know Aaron right. very well. Yeah. Um, but I really think he just wanted to be with his wife again. Um, and, it, and it's a really sad situation, the fact that she had to come back in, you know, multiple bags instead of, you know, alive and well and happy how actually bad it was. So, I mean, I really think he just did that because it was the most convenient thing to do. And he just wanted her belongings. He wanted her. And he was in shock, absolutely. If he actually found out Ashley died from my video being played on Fox News, is he watched his wife die on national television over and over and over again because the Capitol Police, Metropolitan Police, none of them would give him any answers. He was calling and calling and calling, calling the medical examiner, calling everybody he possibly could, and because he didn't even know if his wife was alive. All he saw was that his wife uh, had gotten shot, and then he called the hospitals in the area. No one would give him any information, and then later that night he got confirmation that she had died. And I really think that's that's really what put it all in perspective for him. I mean, he had to sit in front of a television screen and watch his wife die over and over and over again before they would even announce that, you know, if she was alive or if she was dead. I mean, nobody was in communication with him. So your video of Ashley Baba being shot by Michael Byrd was on Fox News pretty quickly that evening? Yeah, I went on Laura Ingram that same night as well as uh, Alex Jones. Wow. Wow. So I don't know how long you were at the Capitol or around the Capitol. Uh, did you at any point run into Ray Epps? Yes, I actually uh, was right around Ray Epps when, so the first initial barrier that went down, I was on the Freedom Fountain. And that's when me and Savannah Hernandez, she's a reporter with Blaze, and we both ran up. Uh, as the first gate was being pushed down and the video that everyone sees is of, you know, Ray Epps whispering into Ryan Samsel's ear is actually Elijah Schaefer's of Blaze TV as well. And so we ran up there and upon the second barrier, you know, Epps was right there. And I had ran into Epps on multiple occasions throughout the crowd. And my personal opinion on Epps is, I mean, he definitely, it seems like he's being protected um, by somebody is the, the most recent thing that came out that made people, kind of start questioning Epps even more is that the January 6th commission, you know, put out, they said that he is not an FBI agent. He's cooperated them. He had an interview with them, but then now they're supposedly interviewing him for the first time this Friday. Yeah. So they're lying about actually having a real incapacity interview with Ray Epps and they're saying he didn't commit any crimes. Um, so there's a lot of interesting things around that situation, especially the fact that the FBI approached people on January 5th, um, telling them not to go to the Capitol and that it was going to be dangerous and they, they were going to be in danger. And this happened to Milo Yiannopoulos, and he listened. He didn't go, thankfully. And then Bakes, Alaska, this happened to, but Bakes didn't want to talk to the feds because he doesn't enjoy cooperating with them, and I can't frankly uh, blame him there. And so he lawyered up, and then they didn't give him that warning. He went out the next day, and he's from a very, very small town in Arizona, and when they were talking to him, they talked about, okay, yeah, like we'd like to meet in person right now. Like we're down the street. And he's in this very tiny town in Arizona, the same town that Ray Epps happens to be from. Yeah. So that was really interesting to me that they had federal agents from Washington, D.C., the 
the field office out there in the same town that Ray Epps was in and coming from. And then the fact that Ray Epps had kind of followed Baked Alaska around like a little puppy dog on January 5th, and that's where that video comes uh, comes from, is Baked Alaska, where he chants fed, 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 after Ray Epps uh, is telling people that they need to go inside the Capitol tomorrow. So there's two of two of two two situations that I can envision happening here is that Ray Epps is a federal agent and they're protecting him because they know that this is going to blow up the entire narrative if it gets out and we're able to prove it, or they're using you know that the establishment is good at leveraging you know off of Darren Beatty's reporting and Darren Beatty's done a fairly good job on this, especially showing the barriers getting cut down and everyone being set up. But with Ray Epps, if they were able to convince the general public that he was a federal agent and the right puts all their eggs in one basket and says, hey, this is our guy, this is our guy, and then he ends up not being a federal agent, then the narrative that has been built up is going to collapse. And that's what they want. They want the collapse of the narrative because they're losing right now. And if they can collapse the narrative just like that, then they can do what they always do is say, no, you guys are crazy conspiracy theorists. Yeah. There were no feds at the Capitol that day. So I really think it's a good thing or it could be a bad thing. Um, but I, I'm really leaning, I, I'd say it's about 50-50 um, for me on if Ray Epps is a federal informant or asset or not. I'm not really leaning one way or the other because I like to find the evidence. I like to discuss. I like to interview the eyewitnesses, Ray Epps himself, stuff like that. But I do know and can confirm that Stuart Road is not a federal asset. Is okay. We actually had an interview set up with him the day he was raided we were about to, we were on our way to interview Stuart Rhodes and the FBI kicked in his door and arrested him. Yeah, so they the head clearly of the, did not want us to get whatever information we were about to get from Stuart Rhodes. Yeah, the and now of, they're trying to make an example out of him and charge him with sedition. The head of the Oath Keepers in, in Arizona and a, a friend of Ray Epps. We're talking to Taylor Hansen uh, to read his works. You go to his uh, Substack, his uh, columns at Substack.com. It's Taylor with an E and Hansen with an E. Uh, more coming up in just a second, but first, I gotta say. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. Brought to you by RedRiverYourWay.com, the big old car dealership in the middle of the USA. The beliefs in freedom, including the freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice and have it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental USA. So today's tweet of the day is from a, uh, a Twitter profile most inelegantly called Cat Turd. And he says, doesn't the fact that Ray Epps is testifying to Congress and not rotting in a jail cell prove he's a Fed? So we just thought that we'd throw that out there. That is your tweet of the day, brought to you by RedRiverYourWay.com. I also need to mention briefly before we get back to Taylor Hansen, the best-kept secret in American health care. So here's the question. Do you have migraines? Do you have neck pain? Do you have back pain? Okay, now look in the mirror. Does one eye look bigger than the other? Are your eyes off balance? Are your shoulders off balance? When you look at a picture of yourself, do you naturally tilt your head to the left or your or to the right because that's how you feel most comfortable? And the answer to any of these questions is yes. You probably need to get your atlas adjusted. That's how I got rid of my migraines and neck pain. Let me explain how it works because this is the best kept secret in American healthcare. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, which only weighs 2 ounces, so it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, 
Your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain, restricting your central your central nervous system's ability to send impulses to the rest of your body. It can also affect your respiratory system, your reproductive system, your digestive system, and yes, it can cause migraines and neck pain. Now, if you're in the central Arkansas area, do yourself a favor. Call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center at 501-279-2009 for a free consultation to see if you need to get your atlas adjusted. If you're outside central Arkansas, so you have people listening from all over the country, all 50 states, go to their website, turnmypoweron.com, click on the tab that says find a doctor to see if you can find a doctor close to where you live. Turnmypoweron.com. You'll be glad you did. All right, uh, back to Taylor Hansen. Now, I wish I could tell you who I saw who had written this, and it might be Darren J. Beatty at Revolver.News, but since Newsweek.com, Newsweek Magazine came out a couple of weeks ago with a brand-new exclusive breaking story uh, claiming that there were hundreds of not FBI assets, but military assets undercover and armed with shoot-to-kill orders at the Capitol on January 6th, uh, one person said, well, perhaps they're not lying when they say Ray Epps is not an FBI agent or FBI asset. Perhaps he's an asset of uh, Joint Terrorism Task Force of the, uh, the U.S. military. I don't know if you'd, you'd seen that put out there or not. Yeah, I have seen that recent report, and it is pretty alarming to me, the fact that they would even issue a shoot-to-kill order, especially on a public ground. I mean, essentially, we the people pay for that building, and the fact that they issue a shoot-to-kill order for anyone who enters the building, that's pretty alarming, especially the fact that they were undercover assets within the crowd. Is It really seems like they planned that event to be a, a really high-casualty event that day. And one thought that went through my brain as I entered the Capitol is, I mean, they could realistically close these doors right now and shoot everyone inside this building and no one would ever know because they could successfully do it to every single person in there. I mean, media personnel, protesters, anything you want to call them, and no one would ever have any idea. And that's really what I think they they were probably looking for that day is we know that they denied the 10,000 National Guard that Trump issued um, on multiple occasions, and that they had the intelligence prior. They knew what was going to go, uh, going to happen, and they talked about this in the in the uh, Congress hearings with Jan- the January 6th committee. Yeah. Is the United States Capitol Police, they had their intelligence in Metropolitan. They had the intelligence to know what was going to take place, but they just didn't act on it. And it seems like they didn't act on it for a reason, is because they wanted that shoot-to-kill shoot order to really take place that day is they wanted people to die because then if people die, they knew they could drum it up as an insurrection, as a, as a huge event that it really wasn't. There was a, a quote from United States Senator Lindsey Graham, a Republican of South Carolina, uh, saying at some point that evening to somebody with U.S. Capitol Police, uh, we pay you guys uh, to use you know, uh, guns to protect us. Why aren't you shooting anybody? Uh, and again, that's not verbatim, but that's the gist of it. Um, mm-hmm. And see, of course, the other problem is that the members of the House and the members of the Senate are seeing things from a completely different perspective than all of you guys who are there as protesters. They're on the inside. You're on the outside. They're not seeing the flashbang grenades, the tear gas, 
the police beating people. Uh, they're just being fed this paranoia like, oh, you guys are in danger, under attack. Uh, we have to evacuate you and take you to this place or that place. So, I mean, would you think that's one of the reasons that most of them have a really different perspective than, than the people who, who are there as peaceful protesters? Yeah, exactly. One, well, I mean, you hit it right on the head there is, is they didn't see what actually took place that day. All they could hear were, were people yelling, were the, the cops radios and whatever the cops were feeding them. That was clearly misinformation because they were terrified and there was no reason to be terrified because it was a mostly peaceful crowd that was coming inside that building that was let into the building by the police. So it, it really just reeks of one huge setup. And, I mean, these, these congressmen that continuously still push this narrative after, you know, a year, and they know that they've, they've watched the security footage, they've seen the police instigate, they've seen them attack the crowd and really explode it into what it was and what took place. But then they still push this narrative of they were terrified. I mean, AOC is a perfect example of this. She wasn't even in the Capitol building, and she said that she thought she was going to die. And she still pushes this narrative. And because they know that they have to push this narrative – to keep the public, at least those that subscribe to, you know, their, their propaganda, because that's what it is at this point, is to keep them calm and to keep them believing in this false narrative that it was an armed insurrection. And now they've kind of switched the terminology a little bit and transferred over to being a riot. Um, but and then every once in a while, they'll, they'll, you see that they get a few more prosecutions, they charge someone with sedition, and they get a little bold again. And then the media starts calling it an insurrection, and then they'll move back to calling it a riot, and yeah. they'll come back to calling it an insurrection, depending on how their prosecutions are doing. So it, they're really just trying to drum this narrative up, and every single congressman that was in that room there that day is guilty of it. Is you know none of these congressmen have been honest about what took place that day, other than Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, and uh, Paul Gosar, especially. Is Paul Gosar has been working, I mean, day and night to, yeah. und- I mean, discover what actually took place this day is because if Americans were murdered by a federal police force while they were peacefully protesting and using their First Amendment God-given rights, that's a problem. And that's exactly yeah. what they don't want to get out. And as you mentioned, Louis Gohmert out of Texas. But um, mm-hmm. I, I may shock you with something here, um, but I'm guessing the overwhelming majority of members of the U.S. House and U.S. Senate, both parties, have not had the intellectual curiosity um, have not had the inclination to even look at the videos that you and I have seen. I think they 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 have other things in, in mind. They have other priorities, and it just doesn't come up on their their radar screen. And they think we're all a bunch of knuckleheads. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example of just how much of a bubble a lot of these people are in. Do you remember the Anthony Weiner scandal? He was uh, married to a close aide of Hillary Clinton, and he was U.S. representative. His district was in New York City. And unfortunately, he had a penchant for sending lewd photographs of himself uh, by Twitter uh, to underage females. And he made the mistake of sending one out on open Twitter uh, instead of as a private message, a DM as they would call it. And Andrew Breitbart happened to catch it, and it became a big scandal. And it was nationwide news. All right, so I had a friend who was chief of staff for a United States congressman from Florida. And I ran into him four days after the Anthony Weiner scandal broke, and I asked him about it. 
and I got a, his eyes glazed over. He had no idea what I was talking about, and it was a scandal of a sitting member of the U.S. House, and he's chief of staff for a different party, albeit um, Republican, for a member of the U.S. House from Florida, and he didn't know what I was talking about. So, um, and and I've asked sitting members of the U.S. House uh, questions when interviewing them about stuff in the news, and they didn't know what I was talking about. Uh, these people really are in a bubble, uh, and I wouldn't doubt that a majority of them believe uh, that there were some violent people among the pro-Trump protesters and the and the Capitol Hill and and, and Metro, um, Metro Washington D.C. police did a good job that day, and they're just not interested in uh, hearing. They can't imagine that there's no other side to it. I, mm-hmm. I'm saying Republicans and Democrats. So I I think to assume that they've all watched the videos that we've watched and are are just being uh, that flagrantly uh, cynical is assuming a lot because I think a lot of these people just, you know, well, what's to talk about? You know? Um, well, they're, they're lazy. And that's yeah, the thing is they already have sure. a, a media narrative painted for them. Right. They just have to go with the narrative and it right. makes their job a million times easier. And I was actually really disappointed. And a lot of people didn't, uh, didn't really pick this up, but Governor Ron DeSantis actually put out a statement on January 6th um, basically commemorating the officers that fought that day. And so they fought bravely and essentially, you know, voicing open support for the officers that killed people that day. So I was really disappointed in that. And that didn't get nearly as not, as much coverage, I feel like. But I mean, the fact that we have Governor Ron DeSantis that, you know, everyone looks up to on the right, that they see, is you know, a future uh, a future president potentially coming out yeah. and supporting these murderers, it's really alarming. Well, um, number one, he had been a member of the U.S. House before he ran for governor, and there were probably um, police officers in Capitol Hill who he got along with famously. Uh, maybe not Officer Dunn, uh, maybe not Officer Morris, maybe not Officer Gunnell, but uh, who knows? Uh, he he could have been familiar with Sicknick um, and, and thought he's a good guy, thought other ones were good guys. But he went with the establishment media narrative that day. And I don't Mm -hmm. think the narrative of what actually happened uh, was immediately available. Uh, I wonder if he has changed his tune since January 6, 2021. I don't know, because I I didn't realize he said that on that day. This was actually, um, from my understanding, was on the anniversary. So it was this year that he stated that. Well, that'd be bad. Yeah, so that's that's why I was uh, pretty alarmed when I saw it because I mean, you know, being you know America's governor, um, he, yeah. he would at least have put a little bit of time and resources into understanding what actually took place on January sixth, especially when he's constantly coming under attack for it. Yeah, that's outrageous. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Uh, that's on the one year anniversary. You know, uh, that would be horrible. But let me let me go back. And, well, I'm sorry. Go ahead. It was just in. It was just in time uh, to to replicate Merrick Garland's. Uh, it was after his presser, and that's exactly what Ted Cruz did, and you know, DeSantis, Hobson Board, and a lot of other congressmen did too. Is is right as Merrick Garland put out his new talking points. You know, still calling people terrorists, saying that we're going to really crack down on anybody that you know was there that day. They didn't even have to go inside the Capitol, but anyone that was there. And that's when you had all these congressmen come out and in support of the Capitol Police. So it really seems like uh, they're being threatened, honestly, at this point. And saying, hey, 
you know, you guys need to go with this official DOJ narrative or we're going to prosecute you too. You're going to be involved in what took place on January 6th. And we've seen them threaten Marjorie Taylor Greene with that, you know, Lauren Boberg, especially Paul Gosar and Matt Gates, is they don't want them talking about what actually took place on January 6th. And I really think the DOJ and, you know, Merrick Garland, they're really trying to pull uh, a power move on the, the rest of these sitting congressmen because they don't want them spreading the truth. They want them to buy into this is a white supremacist um, insurrection that took place at the United States Capitol. And it's just not true. Yeah, I, you know, when I heard Ted Cruz say what he said, uh, calling it a violent terrorist attack on the Capitol, I just thought, okay, maybe he's trying to send a signal to Merrick Garland's DOJ. Hey, look, I'm towing the line here. You don't need to come for me just because I objected to electors on that day. Exactly. Well, that's, that's really what's taking place, it seems like. And then you have, you know, Ted Cruz immediately backtrack on it. And Ted Cruz is a master of words. You know, he's a lawyer. He's a constitutional lawyer. Every word that he uses, he knows exactly what it's for and exactly why it's placed there. So he 100% intentionally was just spewing Merrick Garland talking points so they didn't end up coming for him. And I really think he was just covering his own butt here. Yeah, yeah. I just checked um, uh, Ron DeSantis's. um, I checked his... um, Twitter feeds, both of them as a private citizen, as a governor. I don't see anything about January 6th. But but what we do have is him answering a question from a reporter about January 6th on the anniversary. Can I? This is about uh, a minute 46. Can I, can I play this and then we'll come back? Is that okay? Yeah, of course. Okay. All right. Here we go. That if this is what you said it was, why are you not charging people? So I think it's going to end up being just a politicized Charlie Foxtrot today. Um, I don't expect anything good to come out of anything that Pelosi and the gang are doing. I don't expect anything from the the corporate press to be enlightening. Um, I think it's going to be nauseating, quite frankly, um, and I'm not going to do it. But I do think that if you have this January 6th committee, why do we not know some of the people who we know were really involved in, in orchestrating this? They got pulled off the most wanted list. Christopher Ray was asked at the um, under oath what FBI was involved in that, and he would not answer the question. And so I think that this is something that, that has really been used uh, for political narrative and posturing purposes. I don't think it's been effective. You know, people here in, in Florida. They care about inflation, and they care about gas prices and education and, and crime and all the key issues that are so important, and that's, that's what they talk to me about. Uh, but there is an obsession with this amongst the D.C. New York uh, uh, journalist class, and again, I think it's because it allows them to spin a narrative um, that, that they want to spin. They did not care as much. Uh, about what happened after 2016 when you had a false Russia collusion conspiracy theory that was put on for years because they were involved when doing it and how that may have damaged trust in institutions or all that. So um, so I just think that it's, uh, it, it is what it is, but um, it's not something that I've been con- concerned about in my job here because, quite frankly, it's not something that most Floridians um, have, been, have been concerned about. They're concerned about... Uh, well, that's that's the clip. Uh, let me just mention really quickly, um, usually about two hours and six minutes into the live stream, uh, Podbean uh, brings the live stream to a close. 
But when we go beyond two hours and six minutes, of course, we upload the the podcast. Everything is on the podcast. And and I really appreciate Taylor Hansen uh, staying with us for this long. I don't think either one of us had any idea how long the interview was going to go, but probably didn't realize it was going to go this long. But, Mr. Hansen, you have so much important information that I think my listeners have probably never heard before that I haven't I haven't had the heart to bring the the interview to a close. Um, so I, I don't doubt that you are factually reporting that that um, Ron DeSantis said some nice things about the Capitol Hill Police and the Metropolitan Washington D.C. Police on the one year anniversary of uh, January six. But clearly, what we played um, is more in the wheelhouse of of your and my view of what happened that day uh, than you know uh, providing cover for the, for the for the police. Yeah, well, and I actually not even heard that clip of Ron DeSantis talking that way about January 6th, so I am actually very impressed with that. Um, it doesn't make much sense about the statement um, that I was sent, um, but I definitely will have to look a little bit more into it. Um, but okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. Said there, I mean, he, he was being accurate. Yeah, wait, um, wait, I've got, I've got... Uh, along the lines of what he had to say. I'm scrolling down, and um, I also have a 10-second clip uh, of Ron DeSantis, uh, and this this says, um, let's see, this says Ron DeSantis decides to commemorate January 6th anniversary with comments like this, uh, but it is posted by a Democrat activist, some guy named Daniel Olfelder, um, who calls himself the chief tormentor of DeSantis, so I don't know if it's taken out of context or whatever, but we'll just check this 10-second clip here. And it's an insult to people when you say it's an insurrection, and then a year later, nobody has been charged with that. People are being charged with disrupting things. Well, see, that's all we got on there. So so, so that doesn't really seem like... Um, um, let's see. Okay, I've got one more 38 seconds of... Ron DeSantis, again, put up by this uh, Democrat activist. See what, what this is. Um, so, you know, it's interesting how everything in our society you know, becomes very politicized. And so this is today is going to be, I mean, honestly, I'm not going to watch any of it, but, but, but you're going to see the D.C., New York media. I mean, this is, this is their Christmas, January 6th, okay? They are going to take this and milk this for anything they could to try to be able to smear anyone who ever supported Donald Trump. And I just look back and compare when I was in Congress, what event that, that, that we faced was the, was the attempted assassination of Republican members of Congress. Okay, so that's that. Uh, but anyway, you know, if you come across what you're talking about, about uh, uh, Ron DeSantis commemorating the, uh, the police and the job they did, uh, for sure, you know, get that to us and we'll... You know, we'll, we'll update that. Um, but yeah, I really, I really liked what he had to say about it being Christmas for the uh, DC reporters. Is that's really the level they've taken this to? Is, is you know, this is how they're going to do it every single year. And Nancy Pelosi, you know, hosting the candlelight vigils for the victims that supposedly took place that day. You know, it was really interesting to see that. It was because she's, you know, who is she holding the candlelight for? Is because they killed everyone that was there that day. Anyone that died. It's, the blood is directly on Nancy Pelosi's and the police's hands. So, you know, they, they take time to commemorate the people that they murdered. 
So that was really interesting to me to see when I was in uh, D.C. for the anniversary. Oh, yeah, it's it's just ridiculous. But um, before we let you run, can can I go back to Ray Epps for a minute? Because, again, uh, the night before, uh, he is insisting we got to go into the Capitol. And one of the things that Darren Beatty has pointed out over at Revolver.News is whenever anybody around Ray Epps would try to bring up a point that had anything to do with anything other than we got to go into the Capitol tomorrow, he would try to corral everybody back in. Well, that's not the point. That's not what we're here for. We got to go into the Capitol. That's where the problem is over and over and over again. And again, uh, one of the fellows, I think you named him, started yelling fed, fed, fed at him because obviously, dude, you know, what are you doing here? Yeah, Baked Alaska. He was the one that took the, uh, the, yeah, that initial video that's been used on so many news sources. And he actually, uh, surprisingly, so he is a journalist. Baked Alaska is by definition. And he actually, the media sources, since he was detained after January 6th and charged, he, um, well, he hasn't been charged yet. He has his trial coming up. But since he was detained, he's lost all rights to that footage. So now all these media sources, they can run his footage without paying him or crediting him or doing anything. But, yeah, Baked Alaska was the one that initially recorded that first video of Epps and began chanting Fed. So, wait a minute. The guy who was chanting Fed has been detained but has not been charged with anything with anything yet? So, he, he is awaiting trial. Um, Baked Alaska is awaiting trial. I believe his trial um, is next month, if I believe so. Um, but, yeah, no, he, he most likely will be facing charges because the establishment does not like the kind of work that Baked Alaska does. And he was detained after the video of him went out of where he was. T- he picked up Nancy Pelosi's phone, um, which ended up actually not being the phone in Nancy Pelosi's office. It was a different one. Um, but and then he said, you know, we're coming for you just as a joke because he's a streamer and he adds comedy in his streams. Um, so they've really clamped down on him for that. But in doing so, they've, I mean, cut him financially. They've pretty much destroyed this guy's life. And no one really knows about, you know, he was the first one to really expose Epps and bring this narrative to light. Yeah, but, I mean, if his, if his um, trial is next month, obviously there must be some kind of charges on it. Yes, yeah, well, I know they are trying to bring some charges against him. Okay, not not really sure what charges or whatever. Okay. Yeah, um, I'm not, not sure on the specifics if they're going for felonies. Um, yeah. I know they're going for a few misdemeanors, um, but I, I would assume that they are going for felonies um, against Big Alaska just because of who he is. Wow, and obviously that's that's the name he's known by online, not his not his real name. Um, yeah, I believe his real name is Tim Giannetti, if I'm if I'm correct. So, yeah. Um, so I got to just ask if Ray Epps is not some kind of federal asset, why is he doing what he's doing on January 5th and on January 6th and helping lead the charge over the barricades, but not going into the building? Um, and then why is he so circumspect when people find him? Why did the FBI have him on their most wanted list for January 6th for months until the media started reporting who he was, and then they memory hold him like never happened. Um, mm-hmm. Why, when the guys who found him in Arizona uh, were confronted by the FBI a few days later, and the, the FBI was like, yeah, we don't know who you're talking about. Uh, why did uh, U.S. Representative uh, Rhino from Illinois, Adam Kinzinger, the other day say, oh, we already talked to him. He's not FBI. 
and now we find out, well, no, you're getting ready to interview him for the first time. There are just way too many things that don't add up here. Yep. Well, it really, it really seems like they're running damage control. Is they know that people are asking all the right questions about Ray Epps, and it's scaring them. And, you know, if he is a federal asset, which I, I do lean a little bit more towards him being a federal asset than not, then, yeah. you know, they've done a great job at covering this up other than ripping him off the FBI's most wanted list. But they actually did that to a few people there that day. Um, not on the exact same day that they took Epps off, but I believe two other people um, have been taken off the FBI list. And another one was confronted, just like they did with Ray Epps. The same person that confronted Ray Epps uh, confronted uh, the other man that they suspected was a federal asset that was taken off. He actually had a firearm and was photographed with it that day, but was never charged. So I, I really, I mean, it's a 100% there were federal assets among the crowd. That is the FBI's job. It's just a matter of how did they act and what were they doing that day? And I really do believe, I mean, from the firsthand things that I witnessed that day is there, there were agitators that day. There was Antifa there that day. There were, there were Trump supporters. There was a little bit of everything. And it kind of blew my mind away to see all these people coming together. And then you would have, you know, somebody stage a photo op. And I have evidence of that is, you know, a left wing journalist from Portland is staging a photo op with an Antifa member from Portland attacking the police. So I really think what they did is they kind of contracted these, these uh, Antifa out and they contracted these ex-military out and they wanted them to act as informants or agitators. And there's been a few videos of people claiming that they were paid to uh, pretend to protest and some other things like that. I haven't been able to 100% verify them because they will not get back in contact with me for comments, of course. Um, but I've attempted to interview Ray Epps and his lawyer, you know, isn't willing to talk. He's not willing to talk. So that was a little bit suspicious. But just upon the Stuart Rhodes case, and Stuart Rhodes knows Ray Epps very well personally, yeah. is Stuart Rhodes was willing to talk, and he got his door kicked in because he was. Um, he was about to talk to us, and we were about to get him booked on Tucker Carlson as well. And then they raided him right as we were on the way to interview him. So I really think Stuart had some pretty damning information for us, either regarding Stuart, uh, regarding Ray Epps or regarding the commission, but it's clearly something that was worth raiding him and charging him with sedition for after they had left him alone for over a year. Well, see, that's just the thing with Ray Epps. I mean, that's the reason so many of us believe he's some sort of federal asset, because if he wasn't, he would have been arrested a long time ago because he's all over video there, you know. And, and, and for that matter, you know, what about the guys on video that uh, were in the Darren J. Beatty's Revolver.News article from a month or so ago, uh, the people who are, their faces are clearly, plainly visible, taking down the barricades mm -hmm. and the no trespassing signs way before the Trump speech is over. And then the one guy, looks like he's at least in his 50s, gets up on top of the scaffolding with a loudspeaker uh, and, and just telling people, move it, move it, come on, get in there. And uh, Phil, he was telling he was yelling at people to fill the Capitol. Yeah, and, and the the, the uh, Biden DOJ doesn't seem to be interested at all in finding out who this is. You know exactly. Well, and that's the reality of it is is there were federal agents there that day that were actively encouraging a riot, actively inciting a riot, and being violent themselves. It's just a matter of proving it. Um, and that's, that's really where it gets down to the heart and grit is because, you know, the FBI isn't ever going to admit that they had assets there. They, they will refuse to. They don't really realistically have to answer to Congress when they're asked. 
you know, they just say, oh, we can't answer that. It's a part of an official investigation. And they've done this, you know, with Ruby Ridge, with Waco, with every single event that they've, you know, heavily been involved with tragedies is they've just not commented. Right. Because they do not have any accountability and no one is willing to hold them accountable because they're scared of these federal agencies. And they should be. These are terrifying federal agencies. And realistically, is I mean, they, they like to call the American people, you know, domestic terrorists. But if there are any terrorists in our country, is it's our three-letter agencies. Is they commit and perpetrate the most terrorism out of anyone in the world. Yeah. Yeah, no question about it. So... <clears throat> When um, when Cash Patel, who was chief of staff to acting secretary of defense, Chris Miller, um, from mm-hmm. November 2020 until Inauguration Day, January 20th, 2021, when he says, look, um, there are a number of us high government officials who are trying to prepare just in case there are any problems on January 6th, and we could not even get in touch with FBI Director Christopher Ray on January 5th or 6th, he was AWOL. What should that tell us? It should tell us that he was a little bit too busy doing something else regarding January 6th. That's the reality of it. Is he, Obviously, he was away from his office and probably in Langley or somewhere along those lines, co-opting yeah. his plan with the military and with everyone else that took place in it. And, I mean, if he isn't willing to answer on January 5th or especially 6th, the day of, it really just shows colors that these people, they do not disclose the truth. They do not disclose anything about their operations, and they have everything to hide and everything to lose at the same time. Okay, now, uh, for the listeners, Langley, of course, uh, he's talking about CIA headquarters, Langley, Virginia. What should it tell us that um, although the – kidnapping plot against Democrat Governor Gretchen Whitmer at this point seems to be a totally owned and operated uh, FBI sting operation where the FBI basically planned the whole thing uh, and they're running for cover that, pardon me, that A, they announced it after early voting for president had started in the swing state of Michigan, and B, a few weeks after they announced it, they made the guy who is the FBI agent in charge of the Detroit FBI field office. They promoted him to be in charge of the Washington, D.C. field office, mm-hmm. um, you know, a couple of months before January 6th. And a lot of people are kind of putting two and two together and thinking that the, uh, you know, maybe the uh, Whitmer alleged kidnapping plan was a dry run for January 6th. No, absolutely. Well, and I really think it was a dry run and, especially with getting these militias name on their board and being able to blame all these crimes on them. As we've seen that they've infiltrated the Oath Keepers, you know, the Proud Boys. And over these past few years, this is what they do with patriot groups or groups that love America is they know that they're easy targets and then they can be used for, I mean, false flags in the future. And I really do think that's what the Governor uh, Whitmer case was really about was just a dry run. You know, they're, they're seeing how much they can get away with, what they can get in the, in the media and how the narrative is crafted. And even after it's been debunked, I mean, the majority of the people on the left and that actually consume mainstream news is they have no idea that it was an FBI plot to kidnap the governor. They still think it were, was these crazy, you know, white supremacist right-wingers that planned to kill this governor and kidnap her. So it definitely was a dry run, and it shows – but the way that they're working through the militias with the indictments is 
They're blaming the Oath Keepers. They're really cracking down on the Proud Boys. And one thing I like to say, too, is I believe it was in 2018. I'm not sure 100% on the year, but Canada came out and declared the Proud Boys as a, as a terrorist organization. So that really opens up the United States to begin uh, performing more surveillance, you know, more infiltration, because now they have you know, probable cause that these people have ties to terrorist organizations, that they are a terrorist organization themselves. So this has really been getting set up years in the making. And this is why they protect the January 6th narrative so much is because it's their little kingpin. And if you knock over their king, they're out of the game. And that's how important this narrative is, is that yeah. I think if we can really blow this narrative up and tell the truth, which I've been doing for over a year now and being silenced over and over again. If we can get the truth out, get the truth to the right congressmen, we can really, uh, I mean, explode this entire thing. And that's why they're so protective of it is because they realize the scope they have lied to American people. And if all the truth comes out, if these 14,000 hours and all these eyewitness testimonies come out, it's going to be the end for them. I mean, you're going to have hearings that are holding the FBI accountable, the CIA accountable, these three-letter agencies accountable, and not just that, but the Capitol Police. They're going to be stripped of their powers or at least held accountable to a certain extent. So they're terrified. Is This is their worst fear if this narrative collapses, but this is also the, the best narrative they've had since 9-11, and that's why they're holding on to it so strongly is because it has the capability to pass more post-9-11 type modern bills of where they can surveil the American people, they can label them terrorists, they can throw them in indefinite detainment sure. without parole or without even anything. So this sure. is really what they're setting it up for, and that's why they're protecting it so much. But it's only a matter of time with reporters like Darren, and you have Julie Kelly, you have me, you have Stop Hate. I mean, a lot of independent reporters, especially on this, I mean, they've made it their crusade to hammer it out since it took place, especially people that were there on the ground and witnessed it firsthand, is you can only suppress the information so much. And eyewitness accounts are going to prove what took place that day. And that's really what the bread and butter comes down to is, is talking to the eyewitnesses on the ground that day and proving everything that they say is a lie. And, and this is one of the reasons that if, God willing, the Republicans do take back over the House and the Senate uh, this November, and so they get the majority in January of next year, um, we need to make sure that there are enough Republicans in both houses that are actually interested in getting to the bottom of this. And so a mm-hmm. number of what we call rhinos are going to, going to need to be primaried, I think, uh, specifically of the 2nd District of Texas, Dan Crenshaw, and the 2nd District of Arkansas, yep. uh, French Hill. Um, you know, I had, uh, I had dinner with a communications director, of a U.S. congressman sometime between election night and um, and the end of the year. And uh, I was talking about the fact the election was stolen. He said, look, Doc, Trump has had 50 cases go to court, and it's gone against him in every one of those cases. I said, okay, first of all, at that point, Trump had only done three cases. All the other cases were done by people who are trying to help Trump, uh, people you know, uh, allied to Trump, maybe the uh, Republican Party of Pennsylvania or something like that, but Trump only had three. I said, guess how many evidentiary hearings there were in court of those 50 cases? And he said, I'm afraid you're going to tell me. I said, yeah, none, zero. Uh, The courts uh, ruled, well, you don't have standing or it's a moot point or whatever. 
every one of those judges refused to have an evidentiary hearing. And so, again, this goes back to the bubble that these people in Congress are in and their choices of who they want to listen to and who they think are reliable news sources. you got Kevin McCarthy, who is the minority leader and uh, assumed to be uh, the next Speaker of the House. The Republicans take the House back over, and he's renting a penthouse apartment from uh, the Democrat pollster, uh, Frank Luntz. Frank Luntz. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, a lot of things are going to need to change, and just Republicans taking back over the Senate and the House is not going to be enough for our government to try to get to the bottom of this. Exactly. Well, and you, you really hit it on the head there is saying that we need a primary. Almost every single one of these people is we have rhinos everywhere. And Dan Crenshaw is definitely one that needs to go being a resident of Texas myself. Um, especially after the most recent video of him that came out of him talking down to a little girl, the way he did. Um, I mean, he is not, none of these people really have our interests in mind. And when it really comes down uh, to everything is most of these people are in on it. Like you said, Kevin McCarthy sharing an apartment with Frank Luntz, a Democratic strategist, and, you know, and a wordsmith is he's being fed his talking points from Frank Luntz directly and from the establishment. And that's what all these people are, the good majority of them. And we need real Americans to step up and run for Congress to challenge this you know, this sort of status quo and say, no, we're not going to take this anymore. We want truth. We don't want any narratives. We don't want to follow one media source. We want to do this. We just want to get to the bottom of it. And that's the only way we're ever ever really going to understand what took place on January 6th is independent journalists that were there can only do so much to prove what took place. But when the, everything is declassified and we get the actual footage the footage is going to speak for itself, and the only way we're going to do that is, like what you said, is if we have some real fighters in Congress willing to take the risk and to yeah. bring the truth to the American people. Yeah, Dan Crenshaw, yeah, he did uh, uh, really uh, treat this little girl. I've heard she's 11 or 12. I've heard she's 18. doesn't really matter. Uh, she asked a polite question, and he slammed her. Uh, but even before that, he has ridiculed people who think that the election was stolen. Uh, in the case of French Hill, 2nd District of, of Arkansas, he said on the record that uh, President Trump's rhetoric leading up to January 6th was unforgivable. He said it was a fiction and a fallacy that some kind of landslide election was stolen from President Trump. Uh, he proudly uh, announced publicly that he voted to keep Liz Cheney in Republican leadership in the U.S. Yep. House because she was such a... Um, a great conservative after she voted to impeach Trump. I mean, they're they're just, and he voted for the January 6th commission, the Mm cover-up. So guys like this need to be challenged in primaries. I know uh, Crenshaw has three primary opponents. I'm not sure which one of them is the best. I have no idea. But since I still live in central Arkansas, uh, I can proudly say that Colonel Conrad Reynolds is primarying French Hill, and I support him 100%. He just got the endorsement of, uh, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, uh, which is a, a big deal. Uh, so that's that's a great thing, too. Guys like this and, 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 and rhino Republicans, you know, in, in other parts of the country need to be primaried, need to be replaced with actual conservatives. People are concerned about uh, the rights of people. You know, one of the things we haven't really gotten to, and, and I apologize this is taking so long, and I appreciate you hanging on, 
uh, is the fact that hardly anybody in Congress is speaking up for these political prisoners, these January 6th uh, prisoners who are being persecuted, other than Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar, Louis Gohmert, and, and Matt Gates. Um, you know, you got those four speaking up. Do you think they're just ostracized by most of the rest of Republicans in Congress? Oh, you guys are, are, are nuts anyway? Oh, exactly. Well, the reality of it is, is, is they want to sink them with the boat is with this insurrection boat that they're trying to, you know, really sink right now. And they're saying that, you know, they're sitting congressmen that took place in planning it. And that's their narrative. And that's why you have Ted Cruz coming out and spitting out Merrick Garland uh, talking points is because they want to indict every single congressman that is going against them. And I have from a reliable source in Department of Homeland Security, my main one is, I mean, four months ago, he told me, he says, you know, these indictments, it is just, this is just the beginning. Is they're going to revamp the January 6th narrative on the anniversary, which is exactly what they did. And they're going to start mass, uh, I mean, essentially doing mass arrests and mass raids again. And they've, we've seen them do that as they picked up on, you know, the, I mean, arresting people, they arrested Stuart Rhodes, they arrested countless other people. And now they're really coming from the kill shot and they're trying to get congressmen, you know, sitting members of Congress um, to plead guilty and to get indicted on this. And that's really their ultimate goal is if these people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and all these other congressmen and the senator that's speaking out on this topic and is being honest, they want to sink them with everything else. I mean, they're, they're willing to take down their own members of Congress in order to cover this up. And that in itself should speak volumes to the American people about what's really going on. Well, you say their own members of Congress. I certainly don't think they're going to arrest any Democrats. Oh, no, of course not, because every Democrat has been going along with the narrative. Right, only right. The Republicans, uh, can, surprisingly, that have really came out against this. And you think, you know, the left would be a little bit more vocal on this, considering they were anti-police. They wanted to defund the police. And the fact that the police were overly violent that day and murdered a woman on camera, I mean, you think that they would be actively speaking out, saying, hey, this is what a totalitarian dictatorship looks like. This is what happens when the government murders its citizens. But they won't because they killed the political opposition. But we all know if this happened at a BLM riot or anything of the sorts, all hell would have broken loose. Sure. You'd have congressional testimonies, you'd have investigations, and people would be held accountable. Right, exactly. And in case anybody thinks that our guest here, Taylor Hansen, is uh, is exaggerating, uh, perhaps uh, engaging in hyperbole, what you ought to do is go back and look at Attorney General Merrick Garland's uh, address, his speech that he gave, I'm sure it's on YouTube, on January 6th, because he ominously, it was very ominous that he kind of implied that members of Congress were not outside the reach of being indicted by the Justice Department for what happened on January 6, 2021. Uh, Taylor Hansen is not imagining this. Now, when I've actually talked to select members of Congress, and I won't name who, um, because the media will have an absolute heyday with that, but they've all said the same thing, is that they're coming for them, and they, they want indictments on these members of Congress that are speaking out. So, I mean, this is coming from the word of the mouth from sitting congressmen is, you know, they're, they're coming for them because they're actively trying to tell the truth. And Merrick Garland really just repeated that over and over again by saying anyone that was involved, um, you know, with the down for the attack on our democracy. And in that sentence, he's referring to the sitting congressman that helped us stop the steal. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, it's outrageous. Um, Taylor Hansen is at Substack.com. That's where he does his articles, where he doesn't have to worry about being uh, censored. It's Taylor with an E and Hansen with an E. Uh, before he lets you go, uh, is there anything else that we haven't covered today that you think my listeners need to know? I mean, I think we've we've touched base on just about everything relating to January 6th, but all I, all I ask is that you do your own research regarding the topic and that you start telling family members what really took place. Because I know a lot of people seem to be uh, very wary of, you know, discussing January 6th with family or with people that disagree, but all the evidence is there to prove that this was a complete setup and they murdered American citizens and it's the exact opposite of what they said. And, you know, mouth to mouth, is it really, it's just going to expand. You're going to tell one person, this person is going to start telling other people and it's going to explode. And all you need is just a few, you know, hundred Americans to start doing this and to start actively talking about this narrative and how it's about to collapse. And other people are going to start understanding it. It's just spread the news, the real news far and wide and actively speak out about what's going on is because the reality of it is, is they're not going to stop here as they're coming for you next. Yeah. You know, there is no line. This is the dehumanization process. And we've seen it with the vaccines. We've seen it with January 6th and calling people domestic terrorists when there wasn't any terrorism perpetrated that day, other than by the state is they're coming for you next. And it's only a matter of time. So if you really want to take this seriously, tell everyone and anyone, you know, what truly took place that day. Yeah, and the other day when um, Assistant Attorney General in charge of the National Security Division of the Department of Justice testified under oath before the Senate Judiciary Committee that they have uh, established a uh, domestic uh, terrorism unit, and basically they're going after people, uh, they're planning to go after people who um, are against the current regime. I mean, they are clearly trying to criminalize political dissent. Exactly. Well, then you look at uh, the most recent DOJ report about extremism and potential domestic terrorism threats, and one of the biggest things that they have listed at the top is election fraud denial. I mean, so essentially people that push the election fraud narrative. So if you believe in election fraud, you're already on their list for being a, quote, domestic terrorist, and that's as little as it takes is, You know, they they don't care. They know that you're just a normal person that supports your country and loves your country, but they don't care. They are quite literally gearing up to detain you and to kill you. And that's they don't want your ideology. You're accused of wrong think. And that's what we're seeing right now is a lot of people committing thought crimes. And that's what they're going to start enacting on is quite literally people believing in something that is against the official narrative. And it's a terrifying time for America. It is. It is. And the fact that they are already saying if they can't get rid of the filibuster and they can't get their uh, so-called voter integrity bill passed, which is not a voter integrity bill, but would be federalizing elections uh, and would uh, bake in a permanent one-party rule of this country from now on, the fact that Mm -hmm. they are saying there's not going to be a fair election November 2022 if they can't get this stuff passed, at least I think is a, a bright spot in that they realize they believe uh, that they are going to get shellacked in the U.S. House and mm-hmm. U.S. Senate elections in November, and they're trying to come up with some sort of cover story. So for all of exactly. us who thought since they stole the presidential election um, in 2020, what 
might their plans be for 2022. It sounds like they're not organized enough to steal the congressional elections uh, this November. So that gives us a little bit of hope. Um, yeah, well, and the, the reality of it is, is is state elections are a lot harder to steal than federal elections. Yeah. And that's why they're able to do it a lot easier with federal elections. Is yeah. The base counts are higher. Everything is a little bit higher in the, the thresholds for fraud. So right. with, with state elections, is they know they can't actually steal these, at least countrywide. They can't steal all these elections that they need to. Yeah. So they're running damage control and because they realize they're about to lose. And the, the biggest thing that I'm seeing right now just among, you know, just normal citizens is that among left, right, is everyone is starting to hate this administration because they're messing with their money. Yeah. The minute you start touching someone's money, they're going to wake up. They're going to say, okay, this administration, I was making way more money under Trump, paying way less taxes, and now what is this administration? I have to pay a gas tax. I have to pay taxes on this, and my money is, you know, inflated you know, beyond belief and every, you know, month there's less food in the grocery store. So real, you know, Americans and the people on the left, the right, the middle, it doesn't matter the spectrum now. They're starting to understand that they chose the wrong person. And especially Biden voters, as they're starting to see the gas prices are seeing everything and that their money is getting devalued. And nobody likes that. I don't care who it is. Nobody likes to have less money. And so that's really why I think they realize that they really screwed up here is, and that's why they're trying to, th- you know, shove these throat down the American people's throats on sure. um, these bills because they know they're going to lose. And once they lose, they're going to be really running damage control, trying to steal the next federal election. So it'll be really interesting to see how that all plays out. Gas prices and hamburger prices, for that matter, uh, prices of just about everything. Yeah. Ta- yeah, no, pretty much everything I've noticed they jump in. Yeah. Taylor Hansen again, it's T A Y L E R. H-A-N-S-E-N. The columns are over at substack.com. It's taylorhanson.substack.com. Uh, God bless you, sir. We appreciate you coming on the Doc Washburn Show today and appreciate all that you do, uh, and we certainly hope to have you back on again. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me, Doc. It was great talking to you. God bless you. Have a great day, sir. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right. Um that's the longest interview I've done in many years. It might be the second longest interview I've ever done, uh, the longest being the three and a half hours I did with uh, Dolly Kyle in 2016, who wrote the book Hillary, the Other Woman, a political memoir. But um, this is probably the longest interview I've ever done because the one I did on the radio with Dolly Kyle, we had news traffic and weather breaks, we had commercial breaks. Here, the only breaks were briefly for me to do a live endorsement commercial. So this is probably the longest interview I've ever done because a three-hour talk radio show, when you strip out all the breaks, averages about to an hour and 52 minutes. I know that's the way it works with Levin when uh, I would fill in for him and I would wait for them to upload the show, and they'd take out all the breaks. So here we are, um, two hours and 38 minutes into this. This is more like having done maybe a four-hour show for, or, or, or more. So probably the longest interview I've ever done. Um, but I didn't want to leave any stone unturned. And as always, uh, we appreciate everybody listening. We appreciate all of your your kind comments today. 
And I'm thankful that God has opened this door because uh, the Lord closed the door at Cumulus Media when um, through their myopia they decided that people must, must have an unproven, dangerous substance injected into their bodies. And I wasn't going to do it. So the Lord closed that door and opened this door. And a uh, big thank you to my uh, business partners in this uh, in this effort, uh, Donnie Copeland and Brian Coolis and Mansur Sempier, uh, without whom I would not be able to do this thing. And thank you to you also uh, as this, this, this program grows exponentially into all 50 states and over 30 countries. So having said that, you've been listening to the 70th episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansour's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansur Sempier the tenth. And that's the way it is. Wednesday, january nineteenth, twenty twenty two.